Welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast, the world's most schizoid podcast. Uh, I'm your host, as always, Cooper Cherry. We've got a real treat on our hands today. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, black holes, galactic formation. Uh, we may delve into some other elements of astronomy along the way, but that, that's going to be our focus. And our guest today is Dr. John Cormendi. He is the Curtis Vaughn Jr. Centennial Chair in Astronomy at the University of Texas. Um, he's actually got, he has a, I guess, I'm not even sure how I would define it. So you have the Cormendi relation that is actually named after you. I yes. what, I'm not even sure what the proper, what, what would you describe that as? Is it's a relationship between the size of certain kinds of galaxies and the density of, the, of those galaxies. It's an interesting correlation that came out in the work in my thesis. It has nothing to do with black holes. Right. Um, but, but it's a, a, one of these fundamental properties of galaxies that any theory of galaxy formation and, and evolution has to explain. And so it's been useful from that point of view. It's also useful because uh, density and uh, uh, size scale differently with distance. And so it's a tool for measuring galaxy distances. And that also has made it popular. Nice. Uh, I you know just kind of wanted to familiarize our listening listeners, excuse me, with uh, kind of your work and give a little uh, background there and kind of let them know uh, what your achievements have been. So, what we'll go ahead and do, Doctor Hormendi, if you if you don't mind, is let's uh, let's jump into sort of the basics. And I guess the best place to start would be just to, um, I guess, describe sort of the the phenomenon of a black hole at the solar mass level. And we should probably, I guess, even define as well what, what the measurements are. Like, what is a solar mass, and how do we determine that, etc. So I will okay. let you tackle that if that's okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> so black, let me start by defining what a black hole is. There you go. Over. I think people have a pretty good feeling for that already. But it doesn't hurt to be specific. And the fundamental idea to understand is that how much gravitational attraction there is between two bodies depends on how close they are to each other. Depends on their mass too, but for the moment, let's consider how close they are to each other. If you bring them twice as close to each other, the gravitational force between them gets bigger by four times, two squared. So the closer you bring objects to each other, the more strongly they attract each other gravitationally. And any object, say the Earth or the Sun, uh, or ultimately in this discussion of black hole, attracts the stuff around it gravitationally, and more so the closer you get to it. So the maximum amount of attraction that some object can have on stuff that's near it is, happens when the stuff is sitting on its surface, because you can't get closer to the object than the surface of the object. So we, for example, are attracted by the Earth when we're standing on the surface of the Earth by some amount that you're very, very familiar with. If we climb to the top of a mountain, we are attracted to the Earth a little bit less. Not enough that you'll notice, but a little <laughs> bit less. If we're 100 miles away from the Earth, we're attracted less, and so on. Now, <clears throat> the Earth's not a black hole. The Earth is a rock, or rock and iron. But if you were to squeeze it into a smaller volume without changing its mass, if you just had the technology to squeeze it into a smaller volume, then you could get closer to it. Right? You could be sitting on the new, smaller surface, and therefore the Earth would attract you more strongly. And if you keep doing that, more and more and more, you can imagine that the gravity 
on the surface of the object gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Is there a limit to that? Well, the answer is that when you make the Earth small enough, the gravitational force on the surface is so strong that nothing can get out anymore. No amount of rocket energy or explosion energy or you name it can get you out of there. And that includes light. Even light cannot get out anymore. And that's what a black hole is. It's called black because in principle no light can come out, so it can't shine itself. Um, so that's the definition of a black hole. Now, the thing that you really have to get a grip on is the concept of what an incredible amount of squeezing that requires. And to turn the Earth into a black hole, you would have to squeeze all of it down into a volume the size of a grape. Um, we don't have the technology to squeeze my body into the size of a grape. <laughs> so you can sort of see what I mean when I say that right. this is not necessarily easy to engineer. On a human scale, we certainly, we're not even close. Okay? Right. But nature can do it and can do it quite naturally and does it a lot. And so there are objects in the universe, we are now quite confident, that are small enough, that are compressed enough, that are squeezed enough, that light can't get out of them. And those are black holes, and there's lots of them. And I study them in certain circumstances. <laughs> now, those... F okay, so let's back up, I guess. By the way, you asked me about the sun, uh, solar mass, black hole. We measure the mass of the sun by seeing how fast objects whiz around it. Okay. The Earth, say, for example. Right. You know how far the Earth is from the sun. We can measure that with radar almost. Um, and we know how fast it's moving. We know how long it takes to go around once. It takes a year to go around once. From that, we get the mass of the sun. And so we know what the mass of the sun is, and we know what the mass of the Earth is, which is why I could say what I said a minute right. ago about a black hole, the mass of the Earth. A black hole which has the mass of the sun is about the size of Austin. It's uh, five miles or so in diameter. Uh, and the size of a black hole scales exactly linearly with its mass. So if you double the mass, you double the size of the black hole. At what, at what scale would you say, okay, so I understand that a solar one solar mass would be equivalent to the mass of our sun, but to take that, I guess, a, a step before that, and what what is the unit of measure would you use to describe an you know something as large as a star? Uh, uh, its mass. Yes, correct. Well, a star. Or do we was... even waste time with that? Or no, there are levels at which you need to know the mass in in units that you're familiar with, pounds or kilograms. Astronomers tend to use metric units, so we tend to measure things in kilograms. Right. And the mass of the sun in kilograms is known. Um, but when we, as astronomers, talk to each other about astronomical objects, we don't usually spout numbers in kilograms because right. there are too bloody many zeros. Yeah, exactly right. Um, <laughs> and so we use a unit that's convenient. When we're talking about planets, the unit of planetary mass is often the Earth. Okay, so Mars is less than one. Earth mass. Jupiter is about 300 Earth masses. When we talk about stars, it's convenient to use the mass of the sun as a unit. And so we say this star has twice the mass of the sun, or that one has 10 times the mass of the sun. But in the back of our minds, we know what the mass of the sun is in kilograms. Right. So if you ever want it in kilograms, you can always get it in kilograms. And when you're calculating something like the radius of a black hole, you do need to know it in kilograms. But when you talk to each other about how stars evolve and so on, you don't usually 
keep the kilograms. Right, certainly. You know, in your mind. <laughs> right, okay. I was just kind of curious because it didn't, I wasn't, had actually not heard at what level, you know, is it like decatons or, you know what I mean, what that kind of verbiage was. So, so I was just kind of curious. The mass of the sun is, is 2 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. So it's a two with 30 zeros after and then a decimal point. And that's why we don't right. talk kilograms all the time. Exactly. And that's kind of what I was, was wondering, um, just because the solar mass, I mean, obviously that's a huge, in, our, in comparison to the Earth, that's a huge um, gulf to, yeah. <laughs> to bridge. The so. mass of the Earth is three one millionths of the mass of the sun. Another number that's useful to sort of get your mental scale is the mass of Jupiter. Is about one one thousandth of the mass of the sun, and Jupiter is a planet, right? So whether you're a planet or a star or a rock depends in large part on on your mass and the ways that we can discuss. But fundamentally, if the mass gets big enough, then the central temperature has to be high enough that nuclear reactions can happen, and then you switch from planet to star. Right. Okay. Um, that's kind of interesting. So. What about the composition? So when we're talking about a planet like Jupiter that's a gas giant, is the density of Jupiter... What would the density of Jupiter be like in comparison to the Earth, just say, for example? Like, what, to, kind of, what kind of scale are we talking in terms of difference? remember that all of these objects have enormous temperature and, and pressure and density ranges in them, okay? The Earth is solid, and so the density of rock near the surface of the Earth is smaller than the density of nickel iron at the center of the Earth, but not by a huge amount, by a factor of three or four. Okay. But Jupiter is a gas giant, and the outer parts are gas, and then a good part of the middle is liquid, and then the center is solid, and the range in densities is just absolutely phenomenally enormous. Um, essentially what has to happen for the planet to sit there and not get bigger or smaller on a timescale of like hours, is at every point in the planet or the star, the pressure has to be big enough to hold up the weight of the stuff above it. Now, near the surface of the planet, there isn't much weight of the stuff above it because you're near the surface. If you're Jupiter, you're, what you're above, what's above you is an atmosphere. It doesn't have much weight, and you don't need a lot of pressure. And so the density can be low, and the temperature can be and is low. But as you go down inside it, more and more stuff is above you, and you've got to hold pressure, that up. Right? There's got to be more pressure. What makes pressure? Well, pressure is made by the jiggling of atoms, right? The faster they jiggle, the higher the temperature is. And pressure is made by jiggling, bouncing against the wall, say, bouncing against the stuff above you. So in order for the pressure to get bigger, to hold up all that stuff, the temperature has to get bigger. So as you go inside the planet, the density gets bigger, the temperature gets bigger. The composition doesn't have to change much, but things get more compressed as the temperature gets bigger and the density gets bigger. And so there's no simple answer to the question of what's the density of <laughs> Jupiter, right? The that average density of Jupiter has some number. Right. It's probably five-ish grams per cubic centimeter, not hugely different from the Earth. Okay. But the middle is enormously denser than anything on Earth. And the stuff you see when you look at the surface in a picture from space is enormously less dense than the Earth. Okay. That's, yeah, that's kind of what I was, uh, was... I was wondering, I guess, what the average... I guess, on average. So I think it's interesting that 
it's very close to what the Earth would be, even though the actual physical size yeah. is much larger. I, I just yeah. think that's an interesting I mean, one of the sort things, of you know, relationship. One of the things we always tell our students, Saturn is a slightly smaller planet than Jupiter. And so all these pressure needs are a little bit less severe. Saturn's average density is actually less than the density of water. So the textbooks always say, if you had an ocean that was big enough, you could float Saturn in it. <laughs> it's a slightly stupid comment because Saturn <laughs> would dissolve in the ocean. But, okay, so, so Saturn, for example, has a, a, a density that's less than that of water. Um, the density at the center of the Earth is something of the order of twice the density of metals that you hold in your hand. Uh, and the reason is because of compression. Right? Certainly. And all these comments apply to the sun, too. Right. So the sun also has a very low density where you look at it at the surface. And then it gets bigger and bigger, and the temperature gets higher and higher toward the middle. Okay. Uh, well, let's, let's kind of transition, use that as a transition point into discussing, I guess, the, you know, there's a, there's a certain limit of mass in which a black hole will, will, will form, actually. Um, our sun, I believe, if I remember my studies correctly, is not quite large enough for that to take place. So maybe going into a little bit about that element of the difference, you know, what, what happens to a, a smaller star like, like the sun, and then kind of what that relationship would be extrapolated out to, you know, what kind of solar mass do we need right. to actually create the black hole itself? Could I suggest that I approach that in just a slightly different way? Yeah, I, you're, the, you're the expert. So. <laughs> let's, let's just for a moment think about three kinds of objects. One of them is a rock. It could be an asteroid if it's floating in space, but it could be a rock in your hand. Um, another one is a planet like the Earth. And the third one is the sun. Um, and in a couple of questions, we'll get to the question you asked. Okay. okay? Um, but, but first, let's understand the difference between these three objects. Okay. So the rock isn't, gravity isn't important for the rock, right? The rock is held together by the electrical forces between the m molecules or atoms, whatever the rock's made out of. The same is true of your body. The same is true of a table. Um, when you touch the table, the force you feel is electrons in your hand pushing on electrons in the table. And it's held together by these electrical forces. Gravity is not important. And that is, just to break in, that would be, what is that the strong and weak? No, that's no. just the electric force. Just the electric force the itself. The strong okay. and weak force that hold nuclei together won't come up in this conversation for another five minutes. Okay, so. cool. Sorry to jump in. It, it can. Uh, it can almost avoid it, but it can. But right now, I'm talking about the forces that you and I and all our listeners are familiar with that we experience every day. <clears throat> and one of them, the one that you experience in some sense the most, is the electrical force between things that touch. Um, the other one that you experience every day is the Earth attracts you gravitationally. Gravity is way not negotiable. I'm going to say that sentence <laughs> quite often in this, this discussion. And, and you're very, everyone's very familiar with the fact that gravity is not negotiable. Nobody thinks they're ever going to jump off a tall building with it and get away with it, right? <laughs> um, gravity is not negotiable. And for a rock, gravity is irrelevant. You and the rock attract each other gravitationally by an amount that's so small we can hardly even measure it. Now let's jump to the Earth. The Earth has a lot more mass, and the result is there's a lot more gravitational attraction between every one part of the Earth and other parts of the Earth, or the Earth and you and me. Um, and, 
And that has to be fought by the electrical forces of the solid Earth that try to hold the Earth to have some shape, just like the rock has some shape. Imagine that the rock had that shape, and, but, but was much more massive, then there would also be gravity. And the gravity would try to make it shrink, and the forces between electrons try to keep it where it, the way it is. In a planet like the Earth, there's a compromise. The Earth in the middle is somewhat squeezed. The Earth near the surface is hardly squeezed at all because electrical forces win. If you go to the Sun, now we've got an object which is almost a million times more massive than the Earth. The gravity is at the middle, almost is, is enormously bigger, right? And now a solid can't happen anymore because the electrical forces are never strong enough to counteract that amount of gravity and hold the thing in a static state the way a rock is in a static state when you're sitting in holding it in your hand. The sun can't be solid anymore. It has to be a gas. And what that means is that the electrons in the nuclei and their atoms are separated from each other. They're no longer connected, and the electrons of one atom are no longer pushing on the electrons of another atom and holding the thing steady in a rock, in a lattice, in a solid. Now, the, all these particles are flying around loose, and they can fly around loose at any speed they like, short of the speed of light. And so you can make them fly around fast enough so that there's enough pressure to hold up the star, which is a huge amount of weight, right? And that requires the particles to be moving very fast so that the pressure is high enough. What does that mean? It means the temperature is very high. So the temperature at the center of the sun is like 20 million degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the temperature at the center of the Earth is about the same as the temperature at the surface of the sun, but of course it's held in by the rocks above it. So the bigger an object is, the more gravity there has to be everywhere, but especially near the middle, and the higher the temperature has to be to make enough pressure to hold it up. And there's a transition a little bit bigger than the mass of Jupiter between things that can have solid centers and things that have to be gas. And stars have to be gas, essentially all the way through for essentially all normal stars. So the sun is a ball of gas, and it gets hotter toward the middle, and it Air pressure everywhere is big enough to hold up all the stuff above it. And that's how to think about it. If you look at it at any one instant, it's sitting still, not shrinking, not growing, because the pressure balances the force of gravity everywhere. Is that, that clear enough? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, one sort of question I want to ask, or at least maybe reframe this too, and it's just this con the concept of the way that the atoms are moving yeah. inside of an object like this. And I think maybe it might be useful to kind of talk to people about, I guess, so at the chemical level, like on, like yeah. on, our, on our sort of observational plane, if I heat, if I take a lighter and I heat up a, a piece of wood, then what's happening is that the more that object has been heated, the atoms are mo or there's Chicory. more, there's more movement yeah. there, correct? Right. Yeah, let's let's use metal and. But then you can wood. scale. I mean, obviously, once you're scaling it up to a plant, you know, to the size of the sun, that's a nuclear sort of reaction, which is totally different. Not but yet. I just think it's kind of interesting to. Not yet. We not yet. Nuclear reactions haven't entered this conversation yet. <laughs> so let's let's do what you did, what you suggested. Let's take a piece of metal. Uh, at room temperature, the piece of metal is um, a solid. Uh, the metal atoms have electrons that hold each other in place. 
in some lattice i don't know what the details is what the, the details depend on the metal anyway right but the electrons of the various atoms hold the atoms apart rigidly in some form now in the meantime the metal hasn't got zero temperature and so the atoms are jiggling but they're not jiggling enough to move they're just jiggling a little bit with their electrons still holding them in place now start heating it up as you heat it up it gets hotter as it gets hotter, the jiggling gets stronger. But as long as the jiggling isn't strong enough to break the lattice, to break the holding of the atoms into a rigid form, it's still a solid. Eventually, it gets to the point where the jiggling is so strong that the electrons can't hold it in place anymore. And then guess what? It turns into a liquid, right? And that's a different state where the atoms can move with respect to each other much more freely. But it's not a gas yet. Right. If you heat it more, it'll eventually evaporate. And at that point, the atoms become so loosely connected with each other that they bounce off each other, but they're no longer connected in any kind of rigid form. Right, okay. And that's how solids turn into liquids, turn into gases. If the thing is hot enough, it cannot be a solid anymore, even if it's iron. In fact, the center of the sun contains a lot of iron, and it's gas iron. Now, the one thing I haven't said yet is that at that temperature, even the electrons and the protons that make up an iron atom have been separated from each other. And so the electrons and the, and the iron nuclei are all floating around in, 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 a, in a gas of particles where no particle is permanently connected with any other particle. Okay. I just thought it was important to kind of... Yeah. Extra, uh, you know what I mean? Because I think it's a good exemplifier. You know what I mean? It's a good real-world application oh, of absolutely. what we're going to be jumping into. And, and it's really important that everyone understands that these concepts that we're talking about are absolutely understandable, okay? It may take a few minutes of explanation. <laughs> and, you know, if at the end of the explanation, you or a, reader or a listener doesn't understand what's happened, it's not their fault, it's my fault. <laughs> because the things we're talking about are absolutely explainable. There are scientists who do work that would be difficult to explain to a layman. In fact, there are scientists whose work would be difficult to explain to me. <laughs> and I have some background in physics and astronomy. Right. But what we're talking about here and what I work on, these are things that any listener should be able to understand. And it, if, if they don't, then I haven't done my job well enough. And you should <laughs> ask me questions until I do. Right. So you asked me a minute ago about the evolution. That's the next stage. So now, let's think about the sun that we've been talking about. Everywhere in the sun, the pressure is high enough to hold up the weight of the stuff above it. And that means the temperature has to get bigger and bigger and bigger as you go into the inside. So now we start with new concepts. Um, one of the things that all of us, you, me, listeners, everybody, are very familiar with is the notion that heat flows from hotter places to colder places. And it does that because the hotter places are places where the particles, the atoms, jiggle faster. When they jiggle faster, they hit the things that are colder, harder, and make them move too. And so gradually, the jiggling propagates, say, across the room if you're holding a hot object in your hand. And if you're the sun, and it's hot on the inside, that heat flows outward. And you know it flows outward, because if you try to look at the sun, you fry your eyeballs. <laughs> um, right? There's an enormous amount of heat coming out of the sun. It's what keeps us all alive. So. I described the sun as having a situation where the central pressure is just right to hold it up, but in the meantime, heat is flowing out. Wait a minute, 
<laughs> if heat is flowing out, the particles are going to jiggle more slowly when they get cooler, right? And then they won't have enough pressure to hold up the sun anymore, right? Right. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and so what, what, what happens under those circumstances is that the pressure slowly gets smaller and the star has to shrink. And the time scale on which this happens is a few tens of thousands of years. If you could switch the pressure off completely, can't, but if you could, the sun would collapse in a half an hour. But if you just let it evolve by letting the heat flow out, okay, it takes a few tens of thousands of years, but that's not very long, right? So why isn't the sun doing that? And the answer is there's a heat source, right? And there has to be a heat source. Otherwise, the sun wouldn't stay the way it is for even 10,000 years. And that heat source is nuclear reactions. This is where nuclear reactions and the strong nuclear force enter the conversation. So the reason why the sun, which is busy rating away its heat as fast as it can, isn't getting cooler and shrinking, is that the heat's being replaced by nuclear reactions in the middle, and only in the very central parts. And those nuclear reactions are kept running at exactly the right rate to keep the temperature of the sun the way it is. If they go too fast, they make the sun expand because they make too much heat, they make too much pressure. Suddenly the sun wants to get bigger. If it gets bigger, it gets cooler, reactions come back down again. It's thermostated. It's in fact incredibly well thermostated. It's so well thermostated that in three and a, four and a half billion years, life on Earth has been okay. So that's the new concept, right? It, the sun has to have an energy source to stay the way it is. So now comes the, the, the sort of obvious new idea that, that follows. What happens when the fuel runs out, right? The fuel will run out. There are nuclear reactions that are making the sun go. I could tell you what they are, but it's not critical that you know what they are. The critical thing is some fuel is being turned into something else, and that something, that's the fuel, is going to run out eventually. When it runs out, the nuclear reactions have to stop. If the nuclear reactions stop, the heat is still going to come out. Then the sun will shrink. And if the sun shrinks, then gravity is being converted into heat. This is a concept that you can understand pretty easily. Imagine that you've got a, a, a two-foot stair step, and you stand on the top of it and you jump down. When your heat feet hit the ground, there's noise, and your feet might hurt. But there's also some heat produced. And if you do it over and over and over again, you'll get tired, but your feet will also get warm. Right? That's converting gravitational energy into heat. That's what would happen to the sun. But fuel source runs out, heat keeps coming out, pressure stops, or gets smaller, therefore the sun shrinks, therefore the sun gets hotter and denser. And it keeps doing that until what? Well, one of two things could now happen. Either it gets hot enough for a new kind of nuclear reaction, and that happens for a while, or something happens that stops the shrinking. And this is where your question about what the sun will turn into comes in. Because for the sun, the mass is small enough that a new property that people are not going to be familiar with stop the shrinking. And that new property is that electrons don't like to be squeezed too much. So there is a complicated piece of physics that goes by the name of quantum mechanics that explains the details of why electrons don't like to be squeezed too much, but they don't. And the result will be that the center of the sun will become a white dwarf. A white, a white dwarf, what does that mean? 
it white because the surface temperature is about 10,000 degrees when the um, when that evolution stops and that that heat that temperature corresponds to white light and dwarf because it'll be a lot smaller than it is now it'll be about the size of the earth actually so the sun when it dies will turn will not turn into a black hole it will turn into an object that's about the size of the earth that has a mass about 40% of what it has now the rest will have gone away and it'll stay there and cool forever um, now if the star is much more massive than the sun then this electron squeezing problem is changed right if if you make the star four times the mass of the sun there's a lot more gravity the electrons don't like to be squeezed but there's a limit to how much they don't like to be squeezed and at four times the mass of the sun you'll make a neutron star that's a sort of like the electrons and the protons are squeezed together to make neutrons and a neutron star is also stable it's made out of neutrons it's about the size of austin again and if the star is more massive still say 10 times the mass of the sun then the fact that neutrons also don't like to be squeezed too much isn't strong enough to hold up the collapse and the collapse keeps going until you get a black hole so this is the sense in which black holes are natural it's very easy to understand the concept that if the sun radiates away its heat and therefore shrinks its pressure it's got to shrink and get denser and gravity is the ultimate non-negotiable force so if there's enough of it then all these tricks like electrons don't like to be squeezed can't be used to stop the collapse and the collapse will go on and on and on until the object is small enough that light can't get out and then you give it a new name you call it a black hole i think it might be useful too to sort of frame this in sort of maybe uh talk about sort of the the evolution of a star because there's a process right between what our star is now and what it will like there's a whole life cycle that yeah. will ultimately for our particular sun result in a white dwarf but um you know it, it will become a red giant at yes. some, towards the end of its lifespan yeah, as well that's reasonably easy uh, the new details that we need to understand that are not too much too bad right so i've already said that what's happening right now is for as long as the nuclear reactions can keep going as long as there's still fuel for the nuclear reactions the sun won't change much um because the nuclear reactions are thermostated such that if you know the sun tries to shrink then the nuclear reactions will stop that and if it tries to expand the nuclear reactions will stop that and it'll keep staying the way it is it's been doing that for four billion years eventually the nuclear reactions will run out of fuel because what's actually being done is hydrogen is being converted into helium when all the hydrogen in the middle is converted into helium helium is ash from the point of view of this discussion right now and the temperature isn't high enough for helium to have nuclear reactions and so at that point this balance has to stop because there are no more nuclear reactions but it's still hot in there and the heat will continue to pour out and therefore it's not being replaced anymore the center has to shrink and get hotter as the center shrinks and gets hotter it radiates more because it's even more hotter than its surroundings and as it radiates more the rest of the star which is opaque and has to handle 
this enormous outpouring of energy has trouble handling it and and, and expands and becomes a huge thing that's sort of roughly the size of the earth so the sun will at that stage this is about four billion years from now in a relatively short time when the nuclear reactions stop get a lot the center will get a lot smaller and hotter and the outer parts to handle the new outpouring of the new energy from the new and hotter center have to expand and become a red giant and then for a while it can stay that way and at that point the question becomes is the mass of the helium core the ash core that's getting hotter and hotter is that mass big enough that the temperature will get big enough that the nuclear that, that helium nuclear reactions can happen if the answer is no that and and for the sun it may it, the sun is sort of near the dividing line but suppose for you've got a star where the answer is no then this helium core shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until the electrons don't like to be squeezed anymore and then it stops shrinking because the electrons stop it electrons win over the gravity and then you've got some high temperature and the outer parts of the star pretty much float away and what's left over is the helium core that's a white dwarf made out of helium uh, and it just sits there and gets cooler and cooler and cooler but because at the moment the, the pressure is now not being determined anymore by the temperature it's being determined by the fact that the electrons don't like to be squeezed and it doesn't matter what the temperature is the electrons just don't like to be squeezed and so they'll hold the star up as it cools and the white dwarf will become a red dwarf and will die so that's how low mass stars die now imagine a star that's a little bit more massive it's not massive enough to explode but it's more massive Let's, uh, if I can interject really yeah. briefly, I wanted to just point out some observational things that we sure. can do for, for listeners just yeah. to familiarize them. Because if I'm not mistaken, if, um, is it Betelgeuse is a red giant star super, super giant. in the constellation of Orion? And it would be, if you're facing the night sky, it would be the right shoulder. Am I, am I correct? If you're facing the I sky, want to say it's, the, it's left that, shoulder. the left shoulder. Um, so you can actually, and I never noticed this until I took an astronomy course, that you can actually notice the subtle differences in starlight itself. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Betelgeuse particularly, you can notice that it does have a reddish hue to the, the starlight versus other stars that may be a bluer or a white light, like we've talked about, or even a like our own sun emits more of a yellow kind of orangish yeah. spectrum. That's right. It's Betelgeuse is not a red giant; it's a red supergiant, but it's the right idea. Uh, it's what happens at the same stage to a star that's a little more massive than the sun, but it's an enormous thing. Right. And it is quite cool, um, and it is pretty red. If you, for example, mount a camera on a tripod and open the shutter and leave it open for a while. Uh, so you get star trails, and, and of course your camera is, is, takes color pictures. You will see quite clearly that the, that star makes a reddish trail, whereas the other stars in Orion mostly make white or bluish trails. You can see the colors of stars quite easily. Right. I've always found that super fascinating, just because you know talking about when when the Earth does a become a red giant, so. In terms of its size, it would approach Earth's orbit in terms of size within the solar system, I, I believe. That's right. And so whenever you try to extrapolate, okay, I'm imagining the Earth being that large, coming out to... The sun, you mean. Or, excuse me, the sun, pardon. And then when I look at, when I look at Orion and I can see that red giant, super red giant star out there, it's just interesting to see, to imagine 
this thing is so far away. It's a hundred times larger than our sun, at least. It's more. But it's so far away that it looks like just it's a little dot. Exactly. And that's just so mind-blowing to me. And, and to just sort of, you know, the, the logical kind of <laughs> trying to link those two phenomenon in your, in your head for kind of the average person, sure. I and think, is sort of a... This is one of the reasons why astronomy was not extremely, extremely easy to develop, right? If we had had the accident that the nearest pla any planet comes to us is close enough that we could see a disk, which isn't quite true, but if we'd had that accident, um, ancient Greeks would have realized that those are objects like the Earth, like the Moon anyway. Um, the Moon is the only object besides the Sun whose physical size you can resolve with right. the naked eye. And similarly, if the nearest stars were close enough that you could see disks, uh, the history of astronomy would have been vastly different. Maybe the history of science in general on this planet would have been vastly different. But the universe is big enough that those ancient people had enormous difficulty imagining that the world could, the, the universe, the world in the largest sense, right, could right. be that big. That's fascinating. <laughs> and Betelgeuse, as it happens, is uh, at the same sort of stage that a red giant is at in the discussion we had a minute ago. But it's a more massive star, so it's a red supergiant. If Betelgeuse, if the sun were replaced by Betelgeuse, the Earth would be way inside it. And of course, we'd be, to say we'd be toast <laughs> is a giant understatement. <laughs> right? Oh, man. So let's. So there's even. I guess it might even be instructive if we even just talk about the temperature scale in relation to color, because I don't sure. think that's that's not something that's immediately yeah. tied to your observational sense, uh, kind of at the human level. It's know? more tied than people think. Okay, um, for example, if you we talked a little while ago about heating a piece of metal, you know that if you heat the piece of metal, at first it only shines by the reflected light of whatever light bounces off of it light in the room, sunlight, whatever. <clears throat> but as you heat it up, it eventually starts to glow. And when it starts to glow, at first it doesn't glow very brightly, and it is a reddish glow. Similarly, cool hot coals in a campfire uh, don't glow a lot and right. glow kind of reddish. As you make them hotter and hotter, the color gets bluer and bluer, and the brightness gets, goes up very fast. So. Eventually, the metal, when it, when it gets hot enough to melt, um, it's glowing so brightly that it, it looks sort of like the sun's temperature uh, color. It's still, still a little bit redder, but getting closer. And if you heat it more and more and more, it'll start looking bluer and bluer and very much brighter. In fact, um, stars have properties such that if you know how bright they are and know how what color they look you can pretty much guess their temperature within a thousand or two thousand degrees even even with the naked eye you can almost do that interesting That's, you know if, if i do what i said if i take a picture of a star field and let the stars trail so that the dots are hard to get colors for but trails are easier um you can guess the temperatures of most of those stars pretty closely from their color and once you've got the temperature you can sort of, can you tease out the mass or? It, that's more complicated. That's you more have complicated. to know one more thing. Okay. And here's a, a mind-boggling notion that 
isn't in any sense obvious, but it is true, okay? Um, and you look at the sky, you see, you see stars, you see with the naked eye. You could imagine that those stars look the brightness they've got either, because they're not super bright, but they're rather close to us. Or they are super bright, but they're far away, or some mixture. And since you have some feeling that stars have a range of masses and a range of ages and a range of temperatures and a range of brightnesses, you might think that there's, they are scattered all over the place. You might think that there's a mixture of both. There isn't, as it happens. When you look at the sky, almost every star that you see with the naked eye is really intrinsically bright, brighter than the sun, and far away. There are lots more stars that are f intrinsically fainter than the sun, than brighter than the sun. And they're much closer to us than the things you see with the naked eye, but they're too faint to see with the naked eye. So th if you look at the 50 or 100 nearest stars, only a couple of them are naked eye objects. The rest are little red dwarfs that are closer than the things you see with the naked eye, but they're very much fainter and you need a big telescope to see them. The nearest star to the sun outside the solar system is Proxima Centauri, which is one of the faintest stars known. And you can't see it without a rather big telescope. It happens to be a companion of Alpha Centauri, which is one of the unusual stars that you can see with the naked eye. And Alpha Centauri is almost a carbon copy of the sun. But it's a bit unusual. And Alpha Centauri would be what? It would be a couple of light years away? or 4.3 4 .3 light years, light years away. Yeah, so that's the typical separation of stars in our neighborhood. Okay. Um, I guess go ahead and continue back. We were yeah. sort of discussing the... We were discussing the evolution of stars, and I said that uh, a relatively low-mass star ends up as a white dwarf right. that's made out of helium. Now, when we last saw the star, the core was shrinking and getting hotter because there was no nuclear energy source and the outsides were expanding to handle the outpouring of, of light. Now, if the mass is big enough, then the core will keep shrinking and getting hotter, and it won't be stopped by electrons don't like to be squeezed. Until, or let's say something else happens first, before the electrons stop the, contra uh, the, the contraction, the temperature will get high enough that, that helium can have nuclear reactions. And then you get a whole new heat source. You get reactions of helium to make carbon. And it doesn't give you a lot of energy, but it gives you enough to hold up the, 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 the core again. So then you, you spend a while in a phase that's sort of like a red giant, where the core is held up by the fact that it's got a heat source, again, helium to carbon nuclear reactions. And the outside, well, the outside was already giant. It's going to stay giant. And for a while, the star can live in that state. Not too long, because helium to carbon gives you much less energy per kilogram than hydrogen to helium, but for a while. When that's over, there's a core of carbon which has no nuclear reactions. And the same thing happens again. The core has to shrink and get hotter. And this keeps going. And you go through a whole series of nuclear reactions that make all the elements up to iron. But iron is the most stable nucleus. If, iron, if, if a nucleus has, is more massive than iron, like uranium is more massive than iron, 
then it's less stable than iron uh, for reasons that we can talk about. They're slightly complicated, but for the moment, just accept that iron is the most stable nucleus. And, and, and so you can't make new energy, make nuclear reactions give you new energy by turning iron into anything else. Right? To turn iron into anything else requires energy. And so you end up with um, a star that might have the mass of 10 or 20 times the mass of the sun, which has a central core made out of iron, because the last reaction that held it up was something turning into iron. And now it's all iron, and there's no more nuclear reactions to be had. And so the core can only shrink and get hotter. And at this point, it becomes almost inevitable that a catastrophe happens, because nothing really can stop the shrinking anymore. The mass of this core might be a couple times the mass of the sun. It's all iron. No more nuclear reactions to be had. It gets hotter and hotter as it shrinks until. What happens after the word until is not completely well understood. But roughly speaking, what happens is eventually the temperature gets so high Right, the temperature is getting higher because, of course, shrinking because there's no nuclear energy source. Eventually, the temperature gets so high that the particles of light that are mixed in with everything else break the iron nuclei. Okay, it's mind-boggling notion right. that a particle yeah. of light can hit a <laughs> nucleus and break it. Ah. But that's one of the things that happens. Now, you got energy by taking light stuff and turning it into iron. Now, if you're going to use photons to turn iron into light stuff. That costs energy, right? Because going the other direction gave you energy, so breaking it costs energy. It means you use up the photons. If you use up the photons, you use up the pressure. The pressure just vanishes in like a second, and the core collapses. And this, and the rest of the star falls on top of it. The rest of the star, therefore, gets heated up really hot, and that makes nuclear reactions go completely nuts, and the star explodes. Okay, that was two or three sentences of why supernovae happen. It's not quite that simple, and we don't understand every detail about it, but that's more or less how it happens. It's good enough understanding to get a grip on, on sort of the basic concept that a really, really massive star does not die gently. It dies by having the center collapse and the outside explode away. So the explode away part turns it into a supernova, and you can see that across the whole universe. And that's interesting for people who work on supernovae and for other reasons. Um, but from the point of view of this talk about black holes, the point is that the center of the star was last seen collapsing like crazy. And now nothing can hold it up. And that's how you make black holes. And so the bottom line understanding that I'd like people to have who are listening to us is that for high mass stars, there's this inevitable road because gravity is not negotiable, it's just inevitable that stage after stage, the core gets smaller and denser and hotter until nothing can hold it up anymore. And then it collapses into a black hole. And it's not negotiable, right? It's not that you have to invent some sort of fancy engineering to make it happen. It's very natural. And every star that's massive enough does this. And the result of that is that in our Milky Way, which has had a lot of stars live and die their lives, there are hundreds of thousands of, say, five solar mass black holes floating around. There are dead versions of Betelgeuse. Right? Betelgeuse will do this sometime, maybe tomorrow, 
maybe in 10,000 years, but not in a million years. <laughs> and what will be left over will almost certainly be a black hole. If I can back up for one second, there was one, I guess, phenomenon that I wanted to speak to because I think our listeners will be familiar with um, like a, a nebula. And if, if I remember correctly, I'm straining from my mind to think that a is it called a planetary nebula? Is basically so whenever this off gassing, whenever the star begins to shoot its gas out into you know the I guess the pressure. Correct me if stop stop me when I'm wrong. Is the pressure is reaching a point where it can no longer support it, so it just basically yeah. floats away into That's the right. reaches of space. I, I mean, we were describing these various stages in the evolution of a star, and at each stage when nuclear fuel runs out the core shrinks, gets hotter, and shoots more and more energy out because it's very hot. The, the universe on the outside is the same cold temperature all the time. So this hotter and hotter and hotter core during the later and later stages of life is radiating more and more energy through the surface layers. Well, eventually the surface layers can't handle that anymore. And then they just puff off. And they puff off not quite spherically, but sort of spherically. In the simplest non-rotating star, it will be spherical. And you'll end up with a gas cloud surrounding what used to be the center of the star. The gas cloud used to be the outside of the star, but is now a gas cloud that's just that's got a white dwarf in the middle of it. And in the middle is a very hot white dwarf. And it's very hot because you're now seeing into what used to be the center of the star. And the gas cloud is glowing because it's still hot enough for nuclear for, for atomic reactions to make it glow in the same way that the gas in a fluorescent tube glows right and so when we're observing a, a planetary nebula in particular this is not is it physical is it physical or is it visible light spectrum or do we have to observe this through different no it's visible light. it's visible light you can okay. see it you know this the the nearest brightest planetary nebula you can almost see in binoculars but certainly any telescope that's worth the name telescope will let you <laughs> see those things. And the reason they're called planetary nebulae is that in a small telescope of this sort that you can buy with $1,000 or less, what you see is a little glowing sphere, a circle. N not a, a circle with a dark center, but a circle which is all illuminated in the middle. And that's what a planet looks like in a similar quality telescope. Um, not quite as bright as a planet, but that's why they got the name. Okay. It's got nothing to do with planets. <laughs> right. I'll tell you, uh, one of the remarkable things about astronomers is how incredibly terrible we are at making <laughs> names. And astronomy is rife with names that, have, that are completely counterintuitive because the name has nothing to do with, you, you know, you're, 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 the, the thoughts that spring into your mind when I say the word have nothing to do with the thing that I'm describing. Astronomers are really good at that. <laughs> Black hole was a name that was not invented by an astronomer. It was named by, invented by a physicist who was very good at such things. <laughs> we would have invented some stupid name that I don't even want to think about. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. But yeah, I always thought that was, that's why I even you noticed I was kind of like, well, planetary uh, nebula. Yeah. <laughs> Am I talking about the right thing? Yeah, you're <laughs> right? talking about the right thing and struggling with the fact that the name has nothing to do with what the right <laughs> thing is. Oh man, that's funny. Um, I don't even remember what the other types are. We don't have to get into that. We can we can plunge plunge forward with the supernova remnants. I mean, they, that's a generic term that's okay. And, it, and they're also gas clouds, and they also glow, and they they look a little different from planetaries. 
But uh, yeah, let's let's go ahead and return to uh, the sure. the evolution. I think we were we were on the brink of. So we've gotten to the point where I hope people understand that not every star will turn into a black hole. Our sun will not. But the most massive stars essentially inevitably turn into black holes that have masses about four or five times the mass of the sun up. And they can't go up too much. Um, 30 or 40 is about the limit because you can't make stars that are massive enough to make black holes that are bigger than that. Uh, and the reason is that if you just make a star like the sun that's living through the main part of its life where hydrogen is converting into helium, the bigger the star is, the more pressure there has to be to hold up that weight. The higher the temperature has to be, the faster the reactions go, and therefore the brighter the star is. Well, eventually the star gets so bright that the radiation coming out of the star blows the outer part of the star away. And so there's a limit to how big the star can be. And that limit is about 100 times the mass of the sun. So you can't make a star that's a thousand times the mass of the sun because it would blow itself apart if you tried to put it together. Okay, that makes sense. What I think I wanted to touch on earlier, but I forgot to uh, segue into was I just, I thought it was important to understand because I think at, at my level, it's difficult. You always try to equate size and mass. Uh-huh. And when you're looking at stars, those things are not always congruent, right? So the mass of a supermass, or not a supermassive, but excuse me, like a red giant may yeah. not be as much as our sun, uh, right? No, it or, would, it wait, would no. be more. I've got it backwards. <laughs> let, me, let me try and answer the question I think you're trying to ask. Um, there is a relationship between size and mass for stars that are in the evolutionary state that the sun is in. Okay, which is the first stage, the longest stage of any star's life. It's this time when hydrogen is being converted into helium. Most of the universe consists of hydrogen. We live on a planet that's made out of rocks, so we don't think that, but it's true. Almost all the mass in the universe is in hydrogen. That's about three quarters of it. Uh, about a quarter is in helium, and a very tiny fraction is in rocks. Um, so stars when they form are mostly hydrogen and then they live off that hydrogen and when they're living off that hydrogen as the sun is doing now there's a very strict relation between how big the star is how hot the star is and how massive the star is the mass determines everything about it okay and the biggest stars in that phase are sort of roughly speaking five times the size of the sun but a hundred times the mass of right. the sun and the smallest stars are uh, a bit bigger than Jupiter. And the smallest that any star can have mass is 0.088% of the mass of the sun. So stars have a range of masses from 8% of the mass of the sun to 100 times the mass of the sun, more or less. And during the phase when they're living off of hydrogen, they have a size that's connected with the mass. After that, all sorts of things change. So red giants are after, and white dwarfs are still more after. And at that point, the mass and the size are related in ways that are way different. Right. I guess, yeah, that was ultimately just this difference between observational, quote-unquote, size and mass, I think, begins to... Well, the other thing, of course, that's complicated is that there are two kinds of sizes. There's the size you see, and there's right. the size... Maybe observational is. size would have been the better way to sort of describe in, it, I think. Intrinsic size. Right. The, Intrinsic is not a word that people like a lot, but 
this the size the thing really has you know if it, if you had it in front of you you right. could measure the ruler the size that you'd get not the size you see because it's either close or far right yeah okay and you have some size and that size doesn't depend on how close to me you're sitting <laughs> right? right it's that intrinsic size we're talking okay. about I just wanted to cl- clarify yeah, that. So. Right, sure. I think that was kind of an important... Because no, I mean, it, it, it's easy to... I think it's very easy to fall into that thinking when you're trying to, you know what I mean, yeah. understand these types of scales. Sure. The difference between what you see and what's really there uh, <laughs> is thankfully enormous. Because if all those stars out there were nearby, uh, we'd be toasting. Right. If we were twice as close to the sun, we'd be toast. If we were twice as far from the sun, life would be difficult. If we were three times as far from the sun, we'd be frozen. Like so, Pluto or something, huh? Or even Jupiter. Even Mars. I mean, Mars is kind of on the hairy edge. There might be life on Mars, but it isn't easy. <laughs> and Venus is oh, too hot. So. You were originally interested in talking about supermassive black holes. We've I, now talked about ordinary mass black holes and how stars die and make them. Um, and that part, I hope, is... I mean, that, what we've said about that is what I kind of hoped we'd touch yeah, on. Yeah, I, I think that's... I wanted to make it understandable that it's very natural. That you see, black holes are a very extreme concept. And sometimes people who are not in the sciences look at scientists talking about these extreme concepts and, and sort of wonder whether there's something screwy in their heads, right? That they have some sort of a penchant for thinking about wacko concepts or extreme concepts or dark concepts. Black holes are dark, right? Dark concepts. Black holes have this mystique of being right, dangerous. And that's not at all how it happens. Astronomers get dragged to this concept against their will <laughs> by nature telling them things that are just, they get more and more non-negotiable as you understand them better and better. And then you realize, <laughs> no, it's not some weirdo engineer that you have to somehow dredge out of your imagination. It's what naturally happens when you turn gravity loose on the world. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, what I thought was pretty neat Recently, I guess there was a. Dis- they first detected gravitational waves not long ago, right? Yes. And this was two stars, I think, in the range of maybe like 15 to 18. A little bit bigger, 30 to 40. And so, what I thought was really fascinating about they, so they sort of, these two black holes merged. And what I found really fascinating was the ultimate mass was, I think, two or three solar masses less than the combined previous mass right and so they had described that additional maybe two to three solar masses of mass being converted into pure energy Mm -hmm. and i just thought that was that's a mind-blowing sort of concept too it's extremely mind-blowing because it involves a concept that's very hard to get your mind around and that concept is that space can be distorted right you tend to think of empty space as the place where stuff lives. And then you can discuss the stuff. But you tend to think of empty space as having no properties. It's just empty space. That's way not the way it is in the physical world as we now understand it. Empty space has a geometry that can be changed. In fact, gravity, the best way to describe gravity 
to the best of our knowledge now, which is the theory of gravity that Albert Einstein invented in the 1916 sort of period, is that gravity mass makes space distort. And there's energy in that distortion. Hard to believe that something that you think of as being nothing can contain energy, but it can. And the energy that you described as having been removed from the two stars, uh, the two, they were probably black holes that merged with each other, such that, say, 30 plus 30 equals 58, right. 60. Those couple of solar masses are the energy in the distortion of space that were carried away by the gravitational waves. A very tiny fraction of which, a really, really tiny fraction, because these things are billions of light years away. So the fraction of that energy that passed through the detectors on Earth is an unbelievably small number. And that energy caused the detector to react in a way that, two detectors to react in a way that we could detect it. The engineering involved in making those detectors is beyond mind-blowing. I mean, seriously beyond mind-blowing. The thing that those detectors had to do was detect a periodic change in the size scale of the vacuum that's smaller than a, the size of an atom divided by the distance from here to the nearest star. <laughs> if you think about that sentence I can't and your mind doesn't explode, <laughs> you didn't understand the sentence. <laughs> I can't even. Uh. So, you know, I can say the sentence, but when you, when you ask yourself, how did these people make a gizmo that could do that? Well, this is why we're talking about a paper that had more than a thousand authors and uh, an effort that cost many billions of dollars and many decades. It was very, very, very hard. I can't put enough varies into that sentence. <laughs> You'll get bored this We'll have time. to get exponential to the yeah. 33rd power. <laughs> but those people are very, very good at what they do, and they did it. And, you know, the important thing is, since it's really hard, they have to have two detectors, so that two detectors that are separated by a thousand miles or more either do or do not see the same signal at the same time. If they don't, it's probably a mistake. Right. So if, if these two detectors are running and you're standing near one of them and stomp your foot, the detector will see a gigantic signal, but the other one won't, right? Right. If a car drives by, the detector will see it. You know, it's, it's the stuff that happens on a microscopic level, like people stomping their feet, is an enormously bigger effect than what they're looking for. Right. So they had to dredge this very little signal out of a lot of noise. And doing that is really remarkable. These people deserve, and I'm sure will, win a Nobel Prize within a few years. Uh, and they've already detected uh, about three more that are known about and probably several others that they're still working on and that haven't even reached the rumor mill. And that's important because if, if they see one and never see it again, then you sort of wonder whether somebody screwed up. Right. Uh, even though they're being un you know, unbelievably careful, the, the danger of screwing up is always there. Certainly. And uh, the community including me, who's not close to this and not as an expert in it and not qualified to have an opinion, but the people who do, are qualified to have an opinion have looked at how this was done and, and believed in the results. And so I, as a client of the result, <laughs> also believe in the result. I think 
we can that's a good segue back into so how are we jumping from so a supermassive black hole would have something along the lines of say a hundred mass solar masses correct what would more. what would more than that more. so what what kind of scale are we the, even talking in most supermassive black holes that we know anything about are in the range of one million to ten billion times the mass of the sun oh wow and the Black holes that are dead stars that we talked about 10 minutes ago have a range in masses that starts at around four times the mass of the sun. And the upper limit made out of stars that are living now isn't terribly well known, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of 30-ish, right about what LIGO saw. Okay. Um, What LIGO saw is actually a little bit bigger than is comfortable, and they may be, in fact, remnants of stars that formed in the early universe when when the composition of the universe was different and you could make bigger stars and bigger black holes. Okay. But we're talking about uh, very roughly a million times more massive than a dead star. And those live, as far as we know, one per galaxy. Not in every galaxy, but in some most galaxies in the middle. And the story of how we came to know about them and came to know that that's what they are, is a very rich story that happened kind of in parallel over some of the same decades as the developing understanding of how stars work that we talked about in the first part of this conversation. So if you want, we can switch to talking about supermassive black holes. The, there are two ways we could approach that. One is uh, how do you turn stellar mass black holes, how do you make them? And the answer is you turn them into, uh, into supermassive ones by starting with stellar mass ones. And that's something we've only understood in the last decade or two. Or we could start with the history of how the notion that there might be black holes there uh, ever got established. And that started in the 1960s and is quite a different story. So I don't know which one you'd find more logical, <laughs> oh, but man, I'm, I'm happy to do it either way. That's a tough one. I, I do think it is really fascinating to go into how we jump from the solar mass black holes to these giant i mean it almost seems like there hasn't been enough time for them to have i mean how do you there would have to be i mean I guess you would have to combine them yeah right look the if we had this conversation 20 years ago there would have been no choice we would have started with the history of how we right. observed things that eventually became explained as supermassive black holes but we don't have to do that. We live in 2017. <laughs> we know some stuff now. So, and furthermore, we just spent a goodly amount of time talking about how stars form right. little black holes. So let's do it the other way. Let's start with the little black holes. And that story is actually not all that complicated and not all that difficult to explain. So we live now in a universe made out of galaxies that are like our Milky Way with hundred billion stars living their lives. Some of them are going to turn into white dwarfs. Some of them are going to turn into black holes. That's now. The early universe was quite different. And the supermassive black holes got their start in the early universe. So we have to talk about what the early universe was like. And in the earliest universe, just after the universe formed, the universe consisted of a hot gas plasma. Uh, kind of like the center of the sun now, very hot, very dense. Uh, no atoms yet. Atoms, nuclei, and electrons were not connected yet. All that stuff after the Big Bang, say, a few seconds. 
And then this fireball expanded and cooled. And the universe is still expanding and cooling now. And at first, when it expanded and cooled, it was just a hot gas. And eventually, it was a cold gas. But one of the things that was imprinted on it from the beginning, for reasons that are not easy to explain, but we know that they were there, we observed that they were there, so we know they're there, right? Explaining why is harder, but knowing <laughs> that they're there is easy, relatively easy, is that the density wasn't the same everywhere, okay? So this plasma had spots where the density was a little bit bigger, and other spots where the density was a little bit smaller. Not unlike a lot of substances in your day-to-day -day life, right? Uh, even if you hold a, a rock in your hand, there will be parts of the rock that are denser and other parts that are less dense. The universe's gas is like that. Now, as the universe expanded, gravity started to have time to do stuff. At first, there wasn't enough time for gravity to do anything, but eventually there was enough time. And then the places that were denser had more stuff in them and therefore attracted more gravitationally the stuff around them than the places that were less dense. The result is that stuff fell from places that were less dense into places that were more dense. And the denser places got denser and more massive. And the less dense places got still less dense. And you ended up with a lumpy universe. Okay? And the first lumps that formed were, had masses of the order of, uh, let's call it a million times the mass of the sun. And there is one other complication that we haven't talked about, which is that most of this mass is the dark, cosmological dark matter that dominates the mass of the universe then and still does now. But never mind, that's not <laughs> critical right now. Just let's take it for granted that we know that the universe was lumpy and that the lumps get lumpier. <laughs> and eventually the lumps, which consist of dark matter incidentally, but also stuff, uh, atoms, uh, get dense enough to make stars. And that must have happened of the order of uh, 100 million years or so after the Big Bang, maybe 300 million, but not a billion, and not 23. <laughs> <laughs> and, and these first stars formed in a way that's slightly different from stars now, because back then the universe had in it only hydrogen and helium, really. And that means that there was no carbon, no oxygen, no silicon, no iron, none of this junk that makes the atmosphere of the sun opaque, right? It's because of those atoms that the sun is more transparent. So those stars, being made only of hydrogen and helium, were much more transparent than they are now. And that means they could get hotter than they are now, because the radiation can get out. Ah. Pushing on the gas doesn't blow the gas away huh. anymore. And so this limit that you can't make a star now that's more massive than 100 times the mass of the sun, that limit didn't apply then, because the stars were transparent enough that you could make a 300 solar mass star or a 500 solar mass star. And those guys die in bigger black holes. And so we're now arriving at a bottom line. In the early universe, there were lumpy places where there might have been five or 10 stars that made 50 or 100 solar mass black holes. And they did it in much the same way we discussed a half an hour ago. So you can imagine there's a lump over here, and it's got six black holes in it that are 10, 15, 23, and 75 times the mass of the sun. Not six, add a couple <laughs> more massive. And over here, there's another one, and over here, there's another one, and they're spread out all over the universe. These lumps attract each other. 
And the rest of the history of the universe, even up till now, <clears throat> is um, lumps that are close enough attract each other and merge, collide, merge, make bigger lumps. And galaxies grow that way. So they grow by cannibalism. They grow, well, they grow by eating each other. Um, so this lump over here, which had six black holes, would merge with this lump over here that had three, and eventually would merge with another one over there that had 17. And when you get a lump that's got a few dozen black holes in it and a lot of gas, the black holes will gradually sink to the middle and merge. And so when you add a 23 and a 64, you get an <laughs> 82 or something right. with a few solar masses of gravitational radiation, which goes away, never mind that. <laughs> and gradually you build up in a pretty short time, like less than a billion years, you can merge up from lots and lots of objects that were tens of solar mass each to black holes that have masses of thousands, maybe 10,000, something of that sort of order. The details of the engineering, we don't know. But the first stages of the building of black holes was that merging, we think, merging of the first dead star remnants that were black holes that are a little more massive than the ones we have now. Okay, so now we've got a natural way. It's almost inevitable because these first stars had to happen or there'd be no iron in the universe. <laughs> right, there'd we wouldn't no, be here. There'd be no it. carbon and oxygen. We wouldn't be talking to each other. So those stars had to happen. Besides, we know that the stuff, the, the heavy elements were already there at a billion years because we look at things that are nine billion years away from us and they have those things in them. So we know that the first stars happened and we know that the first stars pretty much had to die in black holes. And galaxies grow by eating each other. And when you got a 100 solar mass object floating around in a gas, it's going to sink to the middle. And when two of them sink to the middle, they're going to merge. And so it's, it seems almost inevitable that you, you have this natural route to turning single solar mass, single stellar black hole remnants of, of stars into seeds of the supermassive black holes that have masses maybe 10,000 times the mass of the sun. And now what happens is 10,000 times the mass of the sun is a lot of gravity. Stuff falls into them. When this stuff falls into them, incidentally, it shines very brightly on the way in because the gas is going at almost yeah, the speed of light. It's right. how you make a quasar. Quasars is how the other part of the story of how we realized that the centers of galaxies were special places, how that got started was we observed the stuff that's falling into the, well, we now know it's a black hole. We didn't at first. But now we know that there's a way to make these seeds. And then the seeds grow by eating the stuff that falls into them. And over the course of a few billion years, um, they grow up to be million, 10 million, 100 million, even 10 billion times the mass of the sun. There are bits of the story that are not completely understood. The speed with which black holes got to, to a billion, it's a bit hard to make sense. But the general notion that this worked in this way is quite well established. And, and that's the picture of how they got started. It's not how we found them in the first place, but that's now the picture of how the stuff that we've been studying for the last 40 years, uh, 50, 60 years actually, how that stuff got its start. And so we now 
I have a way of understanding a path that connects the star evolution stuff with the supermassive black hole stuff that I work on, for example. I work on only the supermassive black holes. The stuff on stars that I told you about is not stuff I personally do research on. But right. I need those guys right. to work that way or I don't <laughs> have a subject. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and this, may, this is probably not your area of expertise, but I, whenever you were describing sort of it's the way that these sort of, I mean, I guess the language would be fall, sort of fall in on one another and just thinking of, I guess, the very, the fabric of space time itself is warped by gravity, correct? Yeah. So if you, it's not the best metaphor, but I, I was thinking, I was picturing puddles accumulating after it rains, right? And where gravity, so if there's a hole, if there's a depression, you know, that water is sort of going to flow into that low area right gravity will cause will cause that phenomenon right uh, is it yeah and i was trying i don't know i'm trying to come up with a good metaphor i'll give you a metaphor it's just not this, this is a fine question okay so this the, let me par paraphrase the question so that i can answer it in a way that <laughs> makes uh, clear sense suppose you've got a, a collection of objects that are uh, revolving around each other like a globular cluster a cluster of stars they're held together by gravity the stars are moving every which way, but they're moving at just the right speed so that the, the conglomeration doesn't collapse. Tear apart, big, right? right? What happens? How does this evolve? Okay, so let's think about two objects interacting with each other. And I want to use an analogy. Um, the gravitational force gets stronger as they get closer together. We know that already. I right. want the analogy to use that. So now let's use an analogy from our day-to-day -day lives that makes this easy to understand. Imagine you've got a skating rink. Okay, let's first start off with an ordinary skating rink like you're used to, flat. And people are skating on it, and they're far enough apart that they don't hit each other. Nothing much is going to happen, right? Now, let's suppose that two people come close enough together that they can grab each other's hands. And they're sp skating at a particular speed, and they grab each other's hands, and they swing each other around, and they let go again. What happens? Well, they both will change their speeds a little bit, and they will both will change their directions a little bit, but not a lot happens. Now imagine that one person weighs five times as much as the other one. Uh -huh. Okay, well, what's going to happen? Well, suppose they're going at the same speed, and as they come together, they grab each other's hands, and they swing each other around, and they let go. What will happen? Well, I think your intuition <laughs> will tell you the right answer. The heavy guy will slow down, and the light guy will speed up, okay? Now, let's make this analogy a little bit more realistic. We've just made an analogy on how two things interact. Now <laughs> let's make a cluster. Let's make a skating rink which is funnel-shaped so that the outsides have a shallow slope downward and the insides have a steeper and steeper slope downward, um, just like a funnel. And now imagine you're a skater skating on this rink because of the funnel and, and of course the earth's gravity underneath is pulling on you as you're skating on the funnel as you're skating on the funnel if you're skating near the outside you can go fairly slowly but the closer you get to the middle the steeper the ice is and the faster you have to go or you'll end up falling into the middle and so as you skate from outside toward the inside and back outside in 
what's really an orbit, <laughs> you're going to go faster near the center and slower right. outside, and then faster near the center and slower outside, and you can keep doing that forever. Uh, now let's imagine two people doing that. One of them is much heavier than the other. If one of them is much heavier than the other, and they swing each other around somewhere in this orbit, the heavy one will slow down. The light one will speed up. Imagine that, for example, the light one speeds up a lot. If the light one speeds up enough, he might get flung right out of the system. And the heavy one will be slowed down. What happens if you're on a skate in a tilted skating rink and you slow down? You fall toward the middle. And then you will go faster, but you'll be closer to the middle. Right. And that's how the heavy guys sink and the light guys go up. And exactly the same thing happens in a cluster of stars. The heavy guys sink, the light guys go up. And if the heavy guys are black holes, then you pretty soon have lots of black holes near the middle approaching each other. And then the heavy black holes will sink with respect to the light black holes until eventually you're going to get mergers. Meanwhile, some of the energy is being carried away by gravitational waves. Thank you for bringing that up 15 <laughs> minutes ago. We need that now. And that will also result in the stars moving closer together until they merge. So we've now got a, I think we, from this, you can get a pretty good heuristic understanding how the heavies sink and eventually the heavies merge. Right. And then you get heavier heavies. Very good. I like that. That was much better than <laughs> I was kind of feeling around in the dark there for a second. It, you know, I meant what I said. The stuff that we're talking about is all understandable pretty well in terms of day-to-day experiences provided you accept certain things like right. gravity is stronger as the square of how close together you are. And my job is to try to find analogies that demystify right. what's really not mysterious, except that I keep throwing out these words like black hole and stellar core and nuclear reactions <laughs> and people cringe. Right. But no, it's not that bad. We can make it understandable. So that's what we're trying to do, right? Right. Absolutely. So now we've, we've discovered that we have, or we are we suspicious, or have we observed that where, what's the observational status of supermassive black holes? We've observed effects, but we... Yeah, the way, this, this is a 60-year-long story. <laughs> um, let me try to shrink it down to a few sentences, and then you can focus in on the bits that you want to. Okay. The story starts sort of at the end of the Second World War. Um, a lot of people during the Second World War were working on new technology, particularly the technology of radio and radar. And at the end of the World War, they had a lot of expertise and no more war to fight. And so they started to think about what are they going to do with their expertise. And some of those people went into communications and invented satellite communications and TV and radio and all the stuff that you and I know and love. But a few of them said, gee, let's... Uh, observe the universe in these radio waves that we now know how to deal with. And so they built telescopes that don't look at light, they look at radio waves, which is light of a different wavelength, nothing else. It's still light, it's just you need different technology to see it. And they looked at the universe and they found there were bright spots. And some of the bright spots coincided with things they knew and loved and understood, like supernova explosions, and others didn't. Some were in places where there was nothing visible. And some were in places where there was something that looked like a star. And that was very strange, because stars don't usually emit the kind of massive volumes of radio waves that we could detect in the 1950s and 60s. And so people started to try to figure out what these stars were, and they couldn't figure it out. 
And the reason, and what, what the way astronomers study objects is they take the light from the object and spread it out into its component colors, like a rainbow spreads sunlight out into its component colors. And from that, you can learn a just absolutely phenomenal amount, except that this vector didn't make sense. Until Martin Schmidt, on a very important day in 1963, I think, sitting in his office in Pasadena at Caltech, place where I got my PhD, um, figured out that this weirdo-looking star was a normal, had a normal spectrum that was redshifted by an amount that he couldn't believe. It was redshifted by 16% of the speed of light. Now, Schmidt knew that the universe is expanding, and so he knew that an object that just redshifted at 16% of the speed of light is very far away from us. In fact, it was the second most distant object known at the time. And yet it was enormously bright. I mean, it wasn't bright by the standards of you looking at the sky with your naked eye. It was about as bright as Pluto. But it was the second most distant object known. So it had to be intrinsically ferociously bright, brighter than any galaxy. And yet it looked like a star. So these things got the name quasi-stellar radiosaurs because they were radio sources, and they looked sort of like stars, but they weren't stars, they were... Quasi means fake, or not quite, or I don't know what the hell it is, <laughs> you know? And, and quasi-stellar radio stars quickly got shortened to quasar. So quasars are these very bright things that very far away that are brighter than any galaxy by and large, and we didn't know what powered them. So it took a while to figure out what powered them, but eventually it was realized that nuclear reactions, the stuff that runs the sun, which were being understood just about the same time, right? How the sun worked was being figured out at around about the same time. They just won't cut it. There's no way that nuclear reactions can power quasars. They're not powerful enough. Something else has to do it. The only thing more powerful than nuclear reactions, if you use it right, is gravity. Enough stuff can make more energy come out than nuclear reactions do. And so gradually in the 1960s, late 1960s, people realized really what had to be happening was that there was in the center of this bright spot uh, an object that was essentially a black hole into which stuff was falling. And as the stuff falls in, it, 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 it spins around the black hole in, in what turns into a disk of gas. And the gas that's closer to the black hole goes faster than the gas that's farther from the black hole. And so the gas that's going slower and the gas that's going faster rub against each other and they get very hot and get so hot that it glows really, 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 really bright. And then astronomers say, wow, four billion light years away, right? Um, that's how that picture developed. So over the course of decades, Many thousands of these quasars were discovered, and the way to understand and other phenomena connected with them were discovered, and all this junk could be understood if there were in the middle black holes whose mass you could estimate, million to a billion times the mass of the sun, swallowing whatever came close. So this very detailed picture of how quasars operate was developed at a time when the gravity of the black hole had never directly been observed. This is a bad thing, right? When you get a very complicated theoretical picture built on a foundation that doesn't exist, <laughs> it's not how science should work. Right. You know, because nature is cleverer than we are, and maybe we're barking up completely the wrong tree. So 
in the, by the 1980s, de directly detecting the gravitational influence of the black hole had become one of the holy grails of astronomy. There was an enormous amount at stake because this whole picture would fall apart if black holes weren't there. Could we find them? And the way you find them is um, you, you look at the stars or gas that are near the center and see how fast they're spinning around the center. And just as when the Earth is going around the sun at a certain distance, how fast it's going at that distance tells you the mass of the sun. How fast the stars are going at whatever distance they're at tells you the mass inside. Now, there's a lot of stars there, too. If the answer that you get is a mass that's explainable by the stars, you didn't find a black hole. But if the answer that you get, if the stars are going around the center so fast that the amount of mass at the center has to be like 100 times bigger than the mass that you can explain in stars, then wow, you found a black object. You don't yet know it's a black hole. That requires better evidence still. But at least you've got part of the way. And that's what I did in the 1980s. So many people were interested in trying to look for the evidence of the gravity that's necessary for this whole picture to work. And it's hard to do because um, a billion solar mass black hole sounds gigantic, but it's less than a percent of the mass of the galaxy. And so most of the galaxy consists of stars that move under the influence of the other stars and they don't know and they don't care that there's a black hole in the middle or not. You have to be able to observe very near the center. And the atmosphere blurs pictures, and so it's hard to be able to do that. So I was able to do it because I was observing from Mauna Kea in Hawaii, which is a mountain that's above 40% of the Earth's atmosphere. It's like halfway to space. And so the images were really, really sharp. And so I could look closer to the center than other people could. And meanwhile, other people were doing it in other places that were quite good too. I had a rival group of actually good friends of mine who were working at Palomar with the 200-inch telescope, which isn't halfway to space, but it's a big telescope. And we independently found uh, the black hole in the nearest big galaxy at the same time and published within a month of each other in 1988. So that's how my involvement got going, right? I was looking for the direct gravitational influence of the black holes on the surrounding ordinary stars in as many of the nearest galaxies as people would give me time for. <laughs> and it worked pretty well. Nice, nice. Um, now, it's been theorized that, I mean, these supermassive black holes exist at the center of, is it every, every galaxy, pretty much? Do we assume that, or... That's or a question still... we have to investigate observationally, right? The theoretical picture that I described doesn't give you the answer. The theoretical picture suggests that every big galaxy ought to have one, but that's only a suggest. It's not a proof. So as it turns out, um, what we now know is that most galaxies that are big have a black hole in the middle, where big means bigger than about a tenth of the mass of our galaxy. The tiniest galaxies we don't know yet, but the chances are fairly good that they don't have a supermassive black hole. They almost certainly have a few five solar mass black holes, but that's not what this part of the conversation is about, right? right? Um, the nearest biggish galaxy that doesn't have a supermassive black hole is the third biggest galaxy in our local group. So if you have to think for a moment about the local geography. 
We live in the Milky Way galaxy, which we see as this band of light across the sky at night. That galaxy is a flat spinning disk, sort of like a frisbee, and we live kind of in the outer parts, so we see this band when we look around in various directions. Our Milky Way is the second biggest galaxy in a little group of galaxies called the Local Group. Real poetic. <laughs> um, and the biggest one is the one I found the first black hole in. And we're the second biggest, and we also have a black hole. And the third biggest is a little smaller than us. And it doesn't have a black hole, and we showed that, right? It has in the center a cluster of stars that's very like a globular cluster of stars, about a million stars. And we measured how fast those stars are moving, and the answer is about 20 kilometers per second, which is small enough to imply a mass that's equal to the mass of the cluster in stars. So the limit on the mass of a black hole in that cluster is about a thousand solar masses, which effectively is zero. You know, there could be a 300 solar mass black hole made out of 10 stellar remnants that could be there, but there's no sign of it. So we know that there is at least some biggish galaxies that don't have a black hole. And the most important and impressive and, and, and far-reaching in terms of its implications result that we found about the demographics of black holes is this. Galaxies often consist of two parts. One is a spinning disk. The spinning disk of our galaxy is what we see as the band of light. And in the middle, there's a roundish cluster of lots of stars that's shaped like a globular cluster, but it's much bigger. When there is a roundish component, there's always a black hole. When there's no roundish component, there is sometimes a black hole and sometimes not. When there is a roundish component, the black hole and the roundish part scale with each other, almost linearly, double the size of the, the mass of the round part, double the black hole mass, with very little scatter. That's a relationship that I actually found in the early 1990s, and it's getting better and better and better all the time. There's no correlation, no relationship between black holes and the flat part. That stuff tells you things about the evolution of galaxies and black holes together, which is where the action is right now in terms of studying black holes and galaxies too. To, just to back up very briefly to, I guess, the nomenclature around the local group. So was this observed? Because I, I remember that Andromeda yeah. is in the local group. That's but the big one. I forget which what the other galaxy's the, name was. The, the, and also, if you could, I guess, define, also clarify which, you know, which galaxy you observed yeah. this in. Um, the, first, the biggest galaxy in the local group is the Andromeda galaxy. It's the one where I found the first black hole. Okay. It's the first real detection of a black hole using the techniques we were just now talking about that we, we made. And it was a plausible object to observe because it's the biggest near thing, you know? Um, if we're looking, generally speaking, when you grow something out of something, the bigger somethings grow bigger products. And so we figured. Let's look at the biggest nearby galaxy. We wanted to look at a nearby one because we need spatial resolution. It's got to be close. So Andromeda was the obvious target, and it worked. Um, we are the second biggest. The third biggest is called Messier 33. It's number 33 in a catalog put together by a French astronomer by the name of Messier, who wasn't interested in galaxies. He was interested in comets. 
but galaxies look like fuzzy spots of light, and he wanted a catalog of the fuzzy spots of light that weren't comets because he wasn't interested in them. Well, we are interested in them now, and number 33 in his catalog is the third biggest galaxy in the local group, and it's the one where we showed there is not a black hole. After that, the next biggest galaxies in the local group are the Magellanic Clouds, which are nearby satellites of our Milky Way that you can see from the Southern Hemisphere. By the way, uh, interesting point for, for, for you and for readers, the Andromeda Galaxy is the most distant object you can see with the naked eye. That's an interesting little statistic, right? It's, uh, it's about two and a bit million light years away, two and a quarter roughly million light years. And you can see it quite easily with the naked eye. It looks like a little fuzzy spot if you know where to look. It's not one of the brightest things in the sky, but it's not hard. And eventually, we'll actually our the Milky Way and Andromeda will merge together That's in right. a few million years. As in, well. No, about four billion. Four billion. In about four, Andromeda and we are already approaching each other. So, at the beginning, everything was expanding away from everything else, and, and things that are far apart are still doing that. But if nearby things have enough gravity, they can stop the expansion, stop expanding with the universe and recollapse toward each other. And Andromeda and we have already turned the corner and are now approaching each other at 100 and some kilometers per second. We're far enough apart that it'll take another 4 billion years. But eventually we will collide. Um, by that time, Andromeda and M33 will already have collided and merged. And eventually the whole local group will turn into one object. That's 5, 6, 7 billion years from now. And that object will be probably an elliptical galaxy. The round part of a galaxy is, is like an, when the round part doesn't have a flat part connected with it, it's given a different name. It's called an elliptical. That's what we're going to be then. Uh, and what will happen to the sun and the earth is not known because it could be flung out, it could enter near the middle. It doesn't matter because the sun will die at about the same time. Anyway, four billion years is long time. We've got plenty now. of time, huh? Yeah. We've got to solve global warming before we get around to worrying about the sun dying. Right, no kidding. Um, um, so, you know, the long-term evolution of galaxies in general is one of the things that people study, and uh, we, we pretty much know what will happen to the local group. So that means that Andromeda's black hole and our black hole will merge with each other near the end of this process. Now, our black hole is very, very well measured. It's the best case now, because we're really close to it. <laughs> and it's about four million mass, times the mass of the sun. Four million. Andromeda's black hole is about a hundred million. So when they merge, there'll be about 104 million solar masses together. But well, that's long in the future. I'm just thinking about the amount of mass being converted into gravitational energy at that scale is just um, it'll, wow it'll be it'll be more than a few solar masses <laughs> but you know wherever life exists in in this remnant galaxy that at the center of which these two black holes are trying to merge will not notice that those two black holes are merging the gravitational waves will pass through them they won't notice it they won't feel it they won't be harmed by it, it you don't have to have very, very sensitive instruments to see it. Very interesting. So just to back up a moment, how recently have we observed the 
did I or did I even misinterpret this? Did, have we observed the black hole at the center of our galaxy? It's being studied steadily all the time. And the one thing that we can do at the center of our galaxy, we can't do in any other galaxy, is we can look at individual stars. The center of our galaxy is about uh, 30 million light years away from us, 30,000 light years away from us, 30,000. That's quite close on, on a galactic scale. And with good telescopes, we can see stars whose orbits around the black hole have periods of tens of years. And so we are in a wonderful position with our galaxy that we're not in with any other galaxy. When I study some other galaxy, I always see a snapshot of the current status or the status one light travel time ago. And during my lifetime, none of that will change. But when astronomers not me, but other astronomers, look at the center of our galaxy, they can see individual stars, and they can see them move, and in one case, they've seen the star go around the black hole more than one time. So this is just like sitting on Alpha Centauri planet, looking at the solar system, watching the Earth go around the sun, if they could do that. As they see the Earth go around the sun, they know how long it takes, because they can see how long it takes to go around the sun, and they see how fast it's going, they measure the mass of the sun, they do it really accurately for one orbit, the Earth. And if they got good telescopes, they could also do Venus, and Jupiter, and Saturn, and so on. Each one will give the mass, and they, they will all agree, because the sun has only one mass. <laughs> and the situation is the same with the black hole in the middle. Every single orbit gives you the mass of the black hole. A different orbit will give you an independent measurement of the mass of the black hole, and they're agreeing. Okay. And you also know one other thing, which is really important. The orbits are closed, right? If the mass is distributed, then the orbits will be some really messy rosette that never repeats. But the Earth's orbit is closed. It's always the same, or very close to always the same. And the reason for that is that all the mass is in the middle. And the black hole at the center of the galaxy is a similar situation. All the mass is in the black hole. The, mass, the individual stars' orbits around it, they're not circular, they're ellipses, but they're closed. So every orbit looks the same as every other orbit. And that tells you that all the mass is closer to the center than the closest the star ever gets to the black hole, which is very close. And that results in two conclusions. One is, I know how big the mass is. And two is, I know, I'm sorry, I know how much mass there is. And two is, I know its radius. It's got to be smaller than something. And those two things together tell you something that's stronger than we have for any other object, which is you can't do this, can't do the engineering of that mass inside that volume with anything other than a black hole. And so that proves not just that there is a high mass dark object, but that that high mass dark object has to be a black hole. It's one of the ways we can show that the objects we're detecting are black holes. Uh, and there's one other which is worth mentioning, and that is how, for example, can you tell whether some dark object that's orbiting another star is a black hole or not? Something less exotic. Well, the answer is, if you dump stuff on it, and it's a material body with a surface, like a neutron star or a white dwarf, the stuff that you dump on it splashes and gets really hot. 
And if you know how much stuff is being dumped and you know how hot it is, you can quite easily figure out that there's got to be a hard surface. But if it's a black hole, there's no hard surface. The stuff just goes through the surface and disappears from view. No splashing. And we see that no splashing happen in quite a few different circumstances, both stellar and supermassive. And so we've got several lines of evidence that tell us that the objects we're finding are really black holes. Just to give us a time check, I think we're we're coming up on two hours now. I certainly don't mind uh, continuing to talk, but I definitely, I obviously want to be very I'm, respectful I'm of your happy, day. I'm happy to do whatever you think readers or, or listeners will, will, I'm sorry, I say readers, I write, <laughs> write popular right? articles, um, will want. Uh, we can continue, we can uh, break off and do a different subject, we can do whatever you like. I'm I'm happy to continue. Like I said, I just wanted to. I don't I don't want to take up your entire day, but I'm I'm definitely I'm enjoying this. It's I, fine. If uh, you're okay with continuing, one, I'm okay with continuing. The one thing that I have to sort of apologize for is we're talking about somewhat complicated objects when we're talking about galaxies. Stars are relatively simple, but galaxies are not very simple at all. And if we were talking about the the microchemistry or physics of human bodies or or, or butterflies or whatever. Life would also be complicated. <laughs> so th the thing that I'm always a little uncomfortable about is it is very easy and, and perfectly reasonable and acceptable and, and natural for you to ask a question that has a one-hour answer. <laughs> but that's not a reasonable thing to lay on a listener. Right. So the struggle isn't to make, the to, to, to make it possible for the listener to understand. That's actually not so bad. The struggle is to do it in a way that's it's cut off in, 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 in palatable chunks. Digestible, right? yeah. The best exactly. cake you've ever had, <laughs> you wouldn't want to stuff the whole cake in your mouth at once. You'd want to nibble at it. Exactly. And this is the same kind of thing. It's right. wonderful stuff, but the, the, the art is in cutting up the ideas into small enough pieces that they're palatable. Certainly. I, I will just ask your assistance. And if, if I'm getting too out there, if I'm getting, if I'm stepping into that territory, you, you police There's me. There's nothing wrong with your questions, <laughs> uh, especially because, you know, as, as a non-specialist, you will ask the next thing that comes to mind, right. which is the right thing to do, as opposed to say, I've got, in some sense, the whole picture in my mind, and I'm trying to figure out how to take bits of it off and make it. Right. so that at the end of the day you've eaten, <laughs> you've eaten the whole cake but you haven't choked <laughs> exactly um let's see i was gonna back up to the scale of because you were i believe you had said that correct me if i'm wrong the so we're about thirty thousand light years away from the center the galactic center right and just to give listeners a scale of the size of the Milky Way galaxy, it's what, approximately 100,000 light years across? That's right. Just to give that kind of element yeah. of scale. Now, this may be stepping outside. I think this is stepping a little bit outside of your expertise, but I think a burning question for most people would be, if we have this supermassive black hole that's mm -hmm. millions of times the mass of our sun in the center of our galaxy, why isn't it devouring mm -hmm. the, ma no. the mass, no, <laughs> you know, everything in, in that's sight? That's absolutely central to what we all do who work on this subject. Um, and it's a very important question because every time I talk to the media, I, I almost always realize that there's this mystique that black holes have, that they're dangerous, malevolent, suck-in-everything uh, beasts, and that 
the black hole at the center of our galaxy will eventually swallow the whole galaxy and it's only a matter of time and we better keep our heads down. No, it's <laughs> nothing like that, right? Um, a black hole is actually the simplest kind of thing that the universe contains. It doesn't have any kind of malevolence or control except gravity. The only thing it's got is gravity. And so if you are in orbit around the black hole, with the right speed at the right at some distance pick a distance given the distance the black hole mass gives you a speed if you've got that speed you will never fall into the black hole unless something changes your speed now if you're going let's let's talk about the earth all right the earth is going has been going around the sun for four and a half billion years in almost the same orbit all the time and the only thing that could stop that from happening is if something made the earth change its speed so if the Earth were hit by something that slows it down, like Mars, suppose it was a Mars-sized object that came out from interstellar space, and it hit the Earth head-on, um, besides doing damage, it would slow the Earth down. If the Earth slows down, it'll fall toward the Sun. But if, it doesn't, if that doesn't happen, the Earth will never fall into the Sun. And if the Sun were replaced by a black hole with the same mass as the Sun, the Earth's orbit wouldn't change. It would continue in that orbit, essentially forever. If the, sun's, if the sun were replaced by a ball of feathers with the same mass, the Earth's orbit wouldn't change. If it were replaced by a ball of chocolate, the Earth's orbit <laughs> wouldn't change. If it were replaced with a black hole with the sun's mass, the Earth's orbit wouldn't change. So the only thing that makes black holes dangerous in some sense is they're tiny. And so you can get close enough to them for gravity to be really oppressive if you're unlucky enough or stupid enough. And you can't do that to an object that's the size of the sun because you can't get closer to the sun than its surface. But a black hole is so small that you can get really, 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 really close. Unless you get that close, you're perfectly okay. So we, uh, at, uh, I mean, at, at 30,000 light years from the center, almost all of our motion is controlled by the other stars. The black hole in our galaxy, our galaxy doesn't have one of these spherical components. So there's no relationship between the black hole mass and the disk mass. The, the, the black hole is uh, less than a tenth of a percent of the mass of the galaxy, quite a bit less. So all of the gravity that the Earth feels, the sun feels, and the stars around us feel, that make us spin around the center of the galaxy, that comes from the other stars, not the black hole. And we will never fall into the black hole. Um, there's no danger of that. The black hole may gradually grow in mass if stuff falls into it, but even if it gets a, a billion times bigger in mass, we still won't fall into it. So furthermore, we're not even in any danger from the radiation from its vicinity, because the dust in our galaxy is so thick that we can't see the center in optical wavelengths. The center of the Milky Way, if you, if you go outside at night at the right time of year, which is summer, and you look at the Milky Way, you can see where the center is, if you know where it is, and you can't, there's no bright spot there. The reason is there's so much crud, dust, between us and the center that we can't see through it. It's like a brick wall. And so if, if the center, if the black hole at the center of our galaxy suddenly ate a lot of stuff because a lot of stuff accidentally fell in, it might turn into a little mini quasar and we wouldn't even notice. Interesting. So we're very, very safe. Hmm. Interesting. I think that's 
what I was sort of fascinated me about black holes is that very idea of I think you kind of that I comparing it to the sun I think is a very interesting way to kind of break away from sort of the imagine you know the popular imagination of what a black hole is yeah because you know I mean essentially it's it's no different right just because just because an object isn't emitting light doesn't mean that it doesn't have exist physically if does that make sense sure i mean i already mentioned that uh, i mean our milky way has been around for well it's been growing for the whole age of the universe but we can call it 10 billion years roughly um it's been like it is now for a much smaller fraction of that time but let's at least five billion years and during that time a lot of stars have lived their lives and died so the Milky Way is strewn with lots and lots of white dwarfs, but it's also strewn with lots and lots of stellar mass black holes that used to be 40 solar mass stars before they died. And mostly we don't even know where they are because if they're floating around by, their, by themselves, they're so dark that we can't find them. We don't know how near the nearest one is. It could be 20 light years away and we would never know it. If it fell into the solar system by accident, we'd know it. But clearly that hasn't happened in the last four and a half billion years. So <laughs> you and I wouldn't be having a conversation. Right. Um, we're not in any danger of it happening. It's one of the things I try to tell my students. Look, there are thousands of, of five solar mass black holes in the Milky Way. Don't be worried about them, <laughs> right? There is something you should be worried about, and that's that we get it by a rock from the solar system, but not cold. So we only find them if we're lucky. Uh, some black holes used to live in a binary star system with another star. And the more massive star died first because massive stars die faster. And the more massive star died as a black hole. And it's now a black hole that's revolving around or the, it, it and its companion star revolving around their common center of mass. And the star that hasn't died yet is dumping material onto the black hole, and that has effects. X-rays come out. Okay, then we can find it. And that's how we find stellar mass black holes. That's why we know something about what masses stellar mass black holes have got. It's because of those objects. But if there isn't a companion star dumping stuff on them, we don't find them. And they're all over the place, and they don't affect us. I mean, we wish we knew a way to find them, but we don't. And is it true that most solar, or I guess that's not even the right word, um, there, most systems are two-star, like there's a binary yeah. typically. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I actually had read an article within, recent article, that there were, were two, uh, a binary system of supermassive black holes. Well, Either sure. that had been theorized or had been discussed. I don't remember the exact... Sure you do, because that... you, you mentioned earlier the LIGO detection of two black holes merging. Well, before they merged, they were a binary of black uh -huh. holes. I was saying, I was, right. I meant, sorry, I think I'm, I said solar mass, but I meant supermassive. Ah, no, well, that's a trickier question. Um, from the way I've described how galaxies evolve, galaxies often collide with each other. When they collide, they stick together, they make one bigger galaxy. That's going to happen with us in Andromeda. That stuff, that story has as a consequence that the black holes that the two galaxies deliver to the collision will eventually end up as a binary near the middle, and 
that binary black holes will spiral together and eventually merge. It's a bomb-proof prediction. So do we see them? How could we see them? Well, the answer is if both of them were currently swallowing stuff, they'd both be little mini quasars, or maybe not mini. Do we observe double quasars? No, not nearly as much as we expect. Uh, that could be an embarrassment, or it could be something better than an embarrassment. Nature's telling us something we don't understand yet. The black, because uh, what am I talking about here? Well, the prediction is that the black hole binary will form. And then the question is, why will the black holes approach each other when they only see each other and not the rest of the stars? And the answer is gravitational waves when they get close enough, but that's, you got to be awfully close. And to get him from what's easy to make to close enough for gravitational waves involves a lot of shrinkage of the orbit that we don't know how to make. Um, we suspect that if there's gas around the friction against the gas and that makes it happen faster, and that will happen a lot in the early universe, and that has everything to do with why I said a half an hour ago or an hour <laughs> ago that the remnants of the first stars will merge by the dozens. But now that's not so easy to do. And yet we don't see nearly as many obviously double active galactic nuclei as many quasars as we'd expect. And that means nature is screaming at us, we know how to make those black holes better than you know how to make those black <laughs> holes. And we're trying to figure out what it is we don't know. But there is something that makes it easier for black holes to merge than we now understand. And there are various ideas floating around. None of them are well enough established that they're worth talking about. It's one of the places where the frontier is. I can't think of any more questions specifically about supermassive black holes that I can ask you, but I will say, I mean, there's definitely, there's a few little ancillary, I think, concepts that we, that you briefly mentioned that we could delve into. But at first I wanted to give you the opportunity to, if there is something interesting that I have not asked you that you find to be a, a, a point of interest, I would definitely encourage you to, well, and then maybe that will generate some additional questions on my own. We've hit on um, the history of how we developed our present understanding of stellar and of supermassive black holes quite well. Um, the connection between them was very important, and we made it, right? How you take a collection of stellar mass black holes and merge them up to make the seed of a supermass black hole, which then grows some more by throwing stuff at it discussed all that. We discussed the observations that lead us to think about supermassive black holes in the first place. We've done actually very well, because you and I both entered this conversation knowing more or less what ground we had to cover. The question is, where is this subject going next? Right. Uh, that would be a reasonable question. And there are two most obvious parts to that answer to that question. The first is that the LIGO detection of two of the first couple of cases of black holes merging is the beginning of some of a, of a absolutely fundamental development in astronomy. There have been several times when astronomy made a giant leap from simpler technology to new technology. An example was when um, astronomers were able to go beyond looking at visible light to looking at radio light or X-ray light. For X-ray light, they actually had to shoot satellites into space because the atmosphere is opaque to X-rays, so we can't see the X-ray universe with the telescope on the Earth. So that also required satellite technology. 
but we do that routinely now. So we study the universe at all electromagnetic wave frequencies or colors of light that nature has. That's already part of our arsenal. Um, and then the next step that was added, which we didn't discuss, is neutrino astronomy. Um, we mentioned briefly that stars explode as supernovae. A thing that I didn't say then was that most of the energy of a supernova comes out as a kind of subatomic particle that we don't usually speak of. It's called a neutrino. It's very hard to detect, but we've, de we've built instruments to detect that. We can detect the neutrinos from the sun. That taught us something really important that we didn't discuss here. But the point that I want to make now is that the leap from studying the universe only with light to studying it also with neutrinos was a very big leap. There were Nobel Prizes awarded for that work. Now we've made, or we're beginning to make another leap. We're now able to study the universe with gravitational waves. That requires a whole new different and much more difficult kind of technology, and that's just getting started. But that has an enormously bright future. Um, more sensitive detectors that can detect stellar mass black hole binaries, like the LIGO detector, are being built. That will be great. If we build such a detector in space, such that we launch the detector into orbit around the Earth, then it becomes enormously more sensitive, and you can look at supermassive black holes. And we know now already more or less the engineering that we need to build detectors that could detect binary black hole mergers to the earliest part of the universe. And so I foresee with some confidence, provided that a not crazy amount of money is available, that um, astronomy will expand into gravitational wave uh, work in a major way in the next few decades. And there will be lots and lots of wonderful headlines connected with that. So uh, the expansion from optical to all wavelengths to neutrinos also, which are particles, to gravitational waves, which are way more esoteric still, is, is providing us with tools that we can use to study the universe, A, enormously better, and B, right back to the beginning. So that future is very, very bright. Um, that's the more important thing that I can say. The other thing that I can say is that we are working hard on the frontiers of trying to understand how black holes, supermassive black holes, that is mostly, and galaxies affect each other during their evolution. And that is a subject that's in its heyday right now. So there will be lots of new results on that subject also coming um, it's a little bit harder to predict what, what exactly the results will be, but there will be a lot happening. And in general, to, to expand the discussion a bit from where we are now, um, the coming decades, uh, we can already foresee technical developments that will make a lot of very exciting astronomy very mainstream doable, you know, the period when you learn the most stuff because all of a sudden your technology is good enough to let you do things. We're in that phase right now for, say, detecting of planets around other stars, detecting eventually of life around in those on those planets. There will be a very, very bright future for astronomy for the next few decades, um, provided that we invest in it at a, a level which is not difficult for countries or groups of countries to manage. So it's a wonderful time to get into astronomy. Um, 
I'm at more or less retirement age. I hope to enjoy watching this stuff happen. <laughs> right. um, if I were starting out now, well, I wouldn't know very much what I would work on. And I, I think you will live to see very many very exciting developments. Our listeners will, you know, listeners that are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, have a very, very good chance of, of living to hear about detections of planets that are essentially like the Earth and a pretty good chance of, of uh, hearing about the first discovery of life outside the Earth. So it's a bright future, and it's an exciting subject to be in. I'm definitely excited for the James, the James Webb telescope to launch. I think that will be, I mean, seeing farther back in time than that we've ever seen. Yeah will be just i mean i don't know how far that we'll be able to observe but it'll be i think the size of the mirror in the james webb telescope is something like 21 feet and i forget something how like big that. hubble's is but it's it's quite a bit smaller uh um, hubble's is a lot smaller um the hope is that we'll at least get close to being able to see the first stars we'll certainly be able to see the first clumps of stars the, Remember when I said lumps form the first collections of stars, that kind of lump forming a collection of stars. The first ones of those that happen should be within reach of the telescope. And that will certainly be one big step. But it's by no means the only kind of development, right? The, the developments of satellites to look for planets. I mean, think about in 1990 when I gave courses on astronomy, I could not mention a single planet outside our solar system. Now we're up in the 5,000s or so level. Um, now we're to the point where we understand that different planetary systems have different architectures, and that tells you something important about how planets form. All that stuff is in the heyday of when you go from hardly being able to do anything to lots and lots of results are pouring in because the technology is suddenly up to learning things. Uh, and then most subjects go through another phase later on when the good stuff, the easy stuff, has been done, and it's hard to make more progress. The subject of stellar evolution is kind of in that stage. There are still really? things that are really exciting, but we, we're victims of our own success in the sense that the next hardest stuff that we have to learn is really, really hard. <laughs> and not that fun. I mean, the fundamental things we, we mostly get. It's the engineering details now and the exotics, uh, the rares, those things. So uh, the good news is that astronomy has a really very bright future, and many of the most fundamental questions that humanity is thinking about, like, is there life on other worlds? Um, what's our place in that scheme of things? How did the whole universe evolve in, 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 in big picture sense? That stuff is within reach, and some of it we already know. If you don't mind backing up with me a little bit, I think there's some, when you spoke about neutrinos, um, I, I vaguely recall how they were detected and it's something, the detector was buried miles below the earth and maybe you yeah. could describe a little yeah, bit about that. Sure. Okay. So we talked um, earlier in this conversation about how stars power themselves with nuclear reactions. And the simplest way to describe those nuclear reactions is that A plus B turns into something heavier, like A plus B combines. And that's true, but it doesn't contain all the richness. And for hydrogen to make helium, for example, you've got to have four protons collect together to make one helium nucleus. 
in that process, other particles get produced, not just energy, but also other particles. And the particles that are particularly helpful are, are neutrinos. So what's a neutrino? It's, it's a kind of elementary particle that's quite different from protons and electrons and, and neutrons. It has a much smaller mass. We're still struggling to measure the mass, but it's not zero. And the really critical thing that makes them interesting and also difficult is that they interact almost not at all with matter. So if you fire a neutron at a wall of lead, lead, something dense, right? That lead has to be more than a light year thick for the neutrino to have a decent chance of interacting with the wall. A wall of lead is transparent to neutrinos unless it's very thick. That should boggle the mind, right? It means that <laughs> neutrinos don't care that the rest of the sun is there. In the center of the sun, some nuclear reaction happens, makes a neutrino, makes other stuff too, but right now it's focused on the neutrino. That neutrino is going in some direction at almost the speed of light. The rest of the sun is transparent to it. It just goes whizzing out at almost the speed of light, and then it keeps going. And if it goes in the direction of the Earth, we have a chance to detect it. The number of neutrinos that are passing through your body or my body in a second is a, is a mind-boggling giant number. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter because we don't feel it, right? So we understand, we think, the nuclear reactions that happen in the center of the sun. That means we know, we think, how many neutrinos it ought to be producing. That means we know, per square centimeter of the Earth, how many neutrinos should be passing through it from the sun. Are they there or not? Well, they're hard to detect because most matter doesn't care. But if you're careful, you can figure out some kind of matter that reacts a little less, not at all, just a little bit with neutrinos. And, and the answer is chlorine, for complicated reasons having to do with <laughs> nuclear physics. Chlorine plus a, a neutrino will react a little bit. And so, uh, People had the bright idea of building a neutrino detector out of um, a giant tank that contained a liquid that was very heavy in chlorine. It's actually perchloroethylene, which is a kind of cleaning fluid. You know that cleaning fluids often contain uh, chlorine. So this thing was built underground in a, a mine. The reason you wanted to put it underground is that chlorine reacts with all kinds of things. If you shine x-rays on it, if you shine other particles on it, stuff happens. That stuff is the noise. What you really want is the very much fewer number of reactions that should all neutrinos from the sun. So you want to put it somewhere safer than the surface of the Earth, down in a mine. And uh, this was done by a guy by the name of Raymond Davis, and it was very, very hard. Right? It's a lot easier than gravitational waves, but it's way harder than anything that had been done before. And he built it uh, quite a few decades ago, and it took a while to get it working, but eventually he was able to measure the number of neutrinos coming from the sun. And the answer was, robustly, one-third of predictions. Oops. <laughs> okay, so there are now two possible things going on. Either I screwed up, or nature's telling me something I didn't expect. 
and they didn't know which was right. And you know how things are. The people who work on a subject feel some confidence. So the stellar astronomers said, oh, we understand the sun. You nuclear physicists don't understand neutrinos. And the nuclear physicists said, oh, no, we understand neutrinos. You don't know what's going on in the sun. And we didn't know who was right. Well, this was a major clash between observations and theory. When that happens, you're going to learn something important. You don't know what it is at first, but it's going to be important. So lots of people worked very hard on it. And we know the answer now. And I can tell you the answer, but your mind is going to boggle, okay? <laughs> it's already boggled so far that I, I don't know. <laughs> you're going to boggle a lot more. So let's, let's launch into the answer. And I'm going to launch into the answer with uh, an analogy. Is this going to take an hour to go into? No, or no? it's going to take about three minutes, two minutes. <laughs> Just checking. Um, and you'll like the analogy. Imagine you're standing on the African belt, and over there there's a herd of elephants, and the elephants start uh, stampeding toward you. Read neutrinos, but talking about elephants. Now imagine that as they come toward you, there are really three kinds of animals on the belt, elephants, giraffes, and antelope. And as the elephants come toward you, every once in a while an elephant pops into a giraffe, or an elephant pops into an antelope, or a giraffe pops into an elephant. And they keep doing that as they stampede toward you. By the time they get to you, about a third of the objects are elephants, and about a third are giraffes, and about a third are antelope as they stampede by you. So when you saw them over there, they were all elephants. But by the time they come here, only a third of them are elephants. This doesn't happen in the real world, right? <laughs> but it happens with neutrinos. So it turns out, and we knew this already, kind of back at the beginning when the neutrino problem appeared, there are three kinds of neutrinos. One kind gets produced in the sun, the other two don't. How comes the mind-boggling comment? Elephants don't pop into giraffes, but neutrinos pop into the other kinds. As the neutrinos come toward us, they mix. Uh, electron neutrinos pop into the other two kinds, and all the kinds are popping into each other fast enough that by the time they get here, only a third of what used to all be electron neutrinos are still electron neutrinos now. And that third is what gets detected, and that's where the number one third came from. It sounds like I just, I mean, to say that I just pulled a rabbit out of a hat doesn't even come close, right? Right. So can this possibly be right? Well, one of the consequences of it is that electrinos ha have to have mass, which we didn't know then. So these things are all connected in really important ways. So we didn't understand that this was going on until the, well, the best observation is the Japanese, who have become very expert in neutrino astronomy, built a detector called Kamiokande, which has been now through several generations of getting better and better. Kamiokande can look at electrons, neutrinos, that come when cosmic rays, which are flying through space, hit upper atmosphere uh, atoms. And so, and, and you know which direction stuff's coming from in the detector. So when, and you can recognize the kind of reaction. So when Kamiokande looks up, it sees a certain number of neutrinos of a certain kind. When Kamiokande looks down, it looks at the same reactions happening on the other side of the Earth. The Earth's transparent, right? And the, the neutrinos from the other side of the Earth take a light travel time to pass through the Earth to the detector. 
So those guys had their reactions a longer time ago than the ones that came from straight up. And they have already started to change. So when Kamiokande looks up and down, it sees the difference that implies that the neutrinos are popping into each other. To go back to the analogy, they observe elephants popping into giraffes and giraffes <laughs> popping into antelope. So we know that happens. This is mind-boggling in several senses. Um, one of them is, all of a sudden, something that puzzled us about the sun and something that puzzled us about subatomic physics have become connected. And laboratories on the Earth can tell us something about physics in the middle of the sun. And we can see the middle of the sun as it was eight minutes ago with neutrinos. Not with light, but with neutrinos we can, because we can see the center of the sun. It's transparent. We can see the nuclear reactions happening, so to speak. And um, the fact that this neutrino oscillation business happens won the people who run the Cameo Candy Detector a Nobel Prize. So there was a Nobel Prize awarded for two people. One is the head of the Cameo Candy team, and the other is the guy who built the neutrino detector that looked at neutrinos from the sun. That was a marvelous piece of physics and science and astronomy all rolled together that added neutrino astronomy to the arsenal of scientists on Earth looking either at subatomic physics or at uh, astronomical objects. The other thing that we saw, um, actually, I said it wrong. The first, the first Nobel Prize for neutrino astronomy was not given for oscillations. It was given to the Kamiokande team leader who detected neutrinos from the most recent supernova explosion. A later Nobel Prize went to the oscillations, uh, to I think a different guy. So you know this this stuff I'm talking about about the, essentially the emergence of neutrino astronomy as a way to do astronomy, not just light but neutrinos, um, was worth a couple of Nobel prizes already, and may well be worth more in the future. So it's a wonderful development, really. It is. I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> right. You know, when I talk about this stuff with admiration, it's not because I'm blowing my own horn. <laughs> Certainly. Um, I guess to back up, and I guess we can close on this too, something that is more related to your work, and you, you, we briefly mentioned it earlier, and that was, and that was dark matter. Yes. Um, because I, my only familiarity with dark matter is that, I don't know, it's been described as sort of giving the universe a scaffolding for matter to clump onto, but I, that's, that's my <laughs> kind that's of bumbling not, that's not wrong. vision of, um, of what, I, what I've heard just from programs and whatnot, yeah, but I haven't done much reading into it. So The dark matter issues uh, kind of deserve a couple of hours on their own. Right. But and you certainly don't have to... I, I'm not going to do that now, but... <laughs> If you want me to do it, I can. We can no, do no, it. We'll, maybe another time, but maybe matter, just a little bit. A just little give bit. us a, a little uh, it has trailer become, for it. It has become pretty clear. Everybody, almost, not quite, but almost everybody believes it now, that uh, most of the matter in the universe is some stuff. We don't know what the stuff is. The stuff doesn't shine. The stuff doesn't interact with. Uh, ordinary matter in any way except gravity as far as we know and that's why we call it dark because it doesn't emit light and it doesn't right. absorb light either but it's most of the mass in the universe 
uh, something like five sixths of the mass in the universe, and and a small fraction of the mass stuff in the universe is the ordinary stuff that you and I and stars and planets are made of. But we're the minority, and most of the matter in the universe is something we don't know what it is. <laughs> this is a little bit crazy, right? Uh, how can we understand anything about how the universe evolves if we don't know what most of it's made out of? <laughs> well, the answer is we know, we know some of the properties of that stuff. We know how much of it there is. We know how it clumps. And we know how much gravity it exerts because it makes stuff move, right? In the same way that I found black holes at the center of the galaxies by looking at how stars near the center of the galaxies are moving, dark matter in galaxies was found by looking at large radii, how fast the stars are moving, and comparing them to how fast they'd move if the stuff in the galaxy were the stuff you see. And they didn't agree by a lot, right? There had to be like 50 times as much, um, no, not 50, three, five or 10 times as much stuff as there is stars. And, and that stuff had to be dark. And that work was done in the, well, it started in the 1930s, but it was really started to be believed in the 1960s and by the 1970s it was pretty established that the dark stuff was there. So since that time we've been studying how the dark stuff makes the universe evolve, which we can do because it doesn't interact in any way except gravity and we know how to calculate gravity, uh, but we don't know what it is. And there are a number of possibilities, uh, each of which has potential detection technology connected with it. And all of them that people know how to explore, they're exploring. None of them have worked. If they'd work, you hear about it the next day in the newspapers <laughs> and two years later from the Nobel Committee, but it hasn't happened yet. So the betting is that this stuff is at least one, maybe more than one kind of subatomic particle that was made in the early universe and that we haven't yet discovered. But we don't know for sure. There are people who think that it's, it's black holes formed in the early universe for reasons we don't know why. But uh, my bet is that they're wrong. But the uh, evidence is not conclusive in any sense. I can't prove that my prejudices are more correct than their prejudices. Um, I can make arguments for why it's more possible, but they're not proofs. So we don't know what this stuff is. Uh, the people who think it's particles are trying to build detectors to find them. If they find them, they will win Nobel Prizes. If they're barking up the wrong tree, they won't find anything after billions of dollars. It's a very, very hard problem. It's way harder than neutrinos. Um, and that's where we stand, right? We know the stuff is there. We don't know what it is. We're looking. Very interesting. It's crazy to think that, I don't know, just, I even try, was trying to think in terms of just matter itself and because there is antimatter right but that's not related to this this is a totally different matter and antimatter are made of the particles you're used to right and, and this is not they even exist but that's not we're talking about right. something way more exotic exactly so neutrinos are already exotic we're not talking about anything as mundane as neutrinos some it's something more exotic than neutrinos how much more we don't know because what it is <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think that's a great stopping point because I know we've, sure. we've been going for, for quite some time. And, and I think finishing with I, we don't know what's happening is a, is a very poetic way we, to finish. We, I said 
the future of astronomy is bright for reasons we can predict. <laughs> the future of astronomy better also be bright for reasons of the stuff we don't yet know. <laughs> In both situations, we're not likely to be out of a job soon. Um, the future will be very interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing as much of it as I live to see. Uh, absolutely. I, I uh, strongly co-sign this. Uh, but Dr. Cremendi, I really appreciate your time. I mean, this has been... I mean, I've been looking forward to this for so long, and it's been such a pleasure and so enjoyable to have you come on today. I enjoyed it. I hope that people enjoyed it, and I hope that people understood it. <laughs> I think so. I think you did a great job. I, I tried to help out as, as much as I could. So Thank uh, thanks again for coming out and uh, getting schizoid with me today. My pleasure. We are going to sign off, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>